I must have done two thousand commercials personally. Uh, I operate on all of them. So by being an operator, you're not only uh, very intimately connected to the actor or the, the whoever's in front of the lens, because when you're shooting, normally it would be a reflex camera. So like that, it's like still photography. I'm looking right into you so I can do this and talk to you, okay? I was told this is not the way we do it. Directors stand back and say, action darlings and shit like that, okay? I don't do that. Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I am your host, Jason Dubray, and uh, for this 44th episode, we're going to be looking at a Ridley Scott master directing class, and I'm really happy to have Carmelita back uh, to talk about these. We talked about religious horror. It, that feels like it was quite a long time ago. I wouldn't, thank you so, so much for, for doing this. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me back. I had such a good time the last time we talked about movies and and then to talk about Ridley Scott, who is one of my favorite directors. I mean, podcast preparation is always fun when you're talking movies, but this was especially I had a really good time. That's good to hear. And I, I love listening to uh, your guest spots on on other shows and you just bring such energy and positivity and uh, enthusiasm. And oh, thanks. Uh, you know, We'll do this with this. And and you, I think originally when we first, I first contacted you not knowing you at all, you had mentioned this idea of doing a Ridley Scott type of show. And I didn't have that kind of put together, but I thought, well, that's great. That's perfect. I did have a little bit of maybe a heads up of some of your opinions because I did listen to uh, <laughs> your episode on Matt uh, on Matt's show uh, talking about Legend, which sounds like you love Legend. We aren't reviewing Legend this time, but but then at the end he was kind of getting you to to talk about some of your favorites there, and uh, so I I have a feeling that uh, we'll mostly agree, but there might be a couple where we are in different places just based on. Uh, the comments from that that show, it, it, I didn't let it impact my points or anything like that, but I think... Oh, of uh, course not. No, you're a man of integrity, <laughs> and you're not going to hurt my feelings if we disagree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's no, just... Not... We'll just say that right off the top. And I think one of the reasons why talking about Ridley Scott and his career is so engaging and interesting, like you can just go down a rabbit hole with his movies, all the different genres that he's the the projects he's done i mean it's just it spans all these different genres you've got just wildly different projects that he's worked on but there's always even with the most disparate <laughs> movies in his filmography you can you can trace the thread of his particular style and his approach and it's always interesting to see how he incorporates that style into a science fiction film versus a crime drama versus a space drama versus a historical. It's, it's really interesting. He just has the most varied filmography. Um, yeah. Again, I, I, I would, I would hate to say it to Matt cause I I'm hoping he'll come back on my show soon. <laughs> yeah, I do prefer Ridley over Tony and that's maybe, maybe that's a standard thing out there. And I, I like that. And I'm, I'm wanting, I'm going back and like watching some of these Tony Scott films to think, well, maybe I, maybe I just wasn't stuck. I was stuck in the, the serious Oscar bait types of movies more than the action-y stuff that uh, Scott did with, I mean, A-plus director uh, elevating some maybe 
potentially mediocre uh, material. But here, Ridley, I think, has always been kind of like the the guy that uh, both critics and audiences have accepted. That may be changing. I did want to talk about the uh, the grumpy old <laughs> white man syndrome that's happening. And I don't know what it says about me that I'm, I kind of at points sort of side with the grumpy old white men. First, it was Scorsese saying that uh, the Marvel movies weren't cinema, and all these people were upset at him over that. They were mad. <laughs> and, they were real mad. And I like the Marvel movies, and I like all that. But you would have thought that in the month of December of 2021, the only movie that came out was Spider-Man. And maybe that has nothing to do with it being cinema or not, but it just it just overtakes the movie theater going experience where I, I'm glad I, I was in another city to, where I could see licorice pizza, but it just showed up last week in the city, small city I live in, mm. but I lead it back to Ridley <laughs> Scott. Ridley this year when the last duel did not do well in this opening weekend, blamed it on millennials who want to spend all their time <laughs> on their self. <laughs> I'm just like, I, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it made some people mad. I'm I'm laughing because now Ridley Scott and I are not of the same generation. I am a late cohort generation X. Me too. Um, so I'm younger than him, but I I I understand. <laughs> I understand that kind of that knee-jerk reaction to kind of shake your fist at younger people. Like, I get it. I understand. It's not going to bring I, people to the movie theater. It's not going to bring people to the movie theater. And although I understand that impulse to kind of place the blame there, it's that's that's not why. There are complex reasons why people are not getting out more to the cinema. Yes. There are reasons why, you know, streaming really has changed a lot of things and it's changed the preference for a lot of people, the convenience of being able to put something on in your own home. And there's just, there's a myriad of reasons on top of which just the world that we're living in and, you know, that we were in in 2021 and the difficulty yeah. of being out in crowded public places, people aren't going to the cinema as much. So like I, I get his sentiment and I, I think it probably comes, this is me speculating from a place of frustration and I don't think he's right. And I don't think he's wrong. I think, but yes, I agree with you. It, it's that making those sentiments public is not going to rally people to go see your next movie. Yeah. So no, I don't no. know how helpful that was, but I, I, yeah. and, I mean, I, I can kind of see where he's coming from, where that frustration comes from. Also, he's a guy who's made 2 million movies. I mean, he's been very successful. <laughs> It's not going to hurt them to say that. Same thing with Scorsese. It's not going to hurt them. Uh, it might hurt their future films. But even though I don't think... I, I'm not going to be stopped from seeing a Ridley Scott movie or a Martin Scorsese movie or a Denis Villeneuve movie based on these frustrations they express with the modern movie business, which is because I kind of... I like still going to a movie theater and watching a movie. I do too. And I, I don't go see every single film that I'm interested in, in the theater. Sometimes that's just because of scheduling. Yeah. And that, that was definitely a factor for me in, towards the end of last year was I wanted to go see the last duel in the theater. There were like, there was this wave of movies that had all been delayed in release. Yeah. And then they released them all 
you know, at basically the same time. I can only get to the movie theater <laughs> so many times in a week. I know. I know. <laughs> or in a two-week span. And so I kind of had to do this kind of negotiation with myself. Which film do I think is going to have visuals that will really suffer watching from home that yeah. I really, really are going to miss something? Which ones do I think... Yeah, it would. I would probably enjoy seeing it on the big screen, but I think I can get away with watching it at home and still having kind of a a similar appreciation for what what the movie is trying to do visually. And that was kind of the negotiation negotiation I had to do with myself. I couldn't and, go see them all. And I really wasn't sure, like the the TV spots that I was seeing for Last Duel. I don't think did it justice. I was like. What, 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 and you know, not I again, I hadn't read a whole lot about that movie before before seeing it. I didn't realize that Ben and Matt had written the screenplay and everything. But I was like, what, what, Ben Affleck looks ridiculous in that, like, uh, the, 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 the chin thing. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what is this thing? And like, oh, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's some sort of an afterthought or whatever, but no, it was actually a very, very big release that they had a lot of hopes for. And, uh, and I'm, just, but anyway, I, I, I Ridley, I admire in the sense he's like uh, Clint Eastwood almost because here he has, and I know it's probably because of the delays, but he had two movies in 2021 released, one in each month, one in October and one in November. And I know both of them have their flaws, but I think they're both very entertaining movies. And so it's not, I don't see diminishing returns coming from Ridley. There's just when you produce as much as he has, there's going to be some hits and some misses. I'll go through the ones that we're going to uh, review here. Certainly trying to do a full, you know, I think this is a good sampling of his work, but there's movies that I forgotten he had directed. I, I was listening to a commentary and talk about G.I. Jane. I hadn't thought of that oh, movie. Yeah. For a while. yeah, he directed G.I. Jane. I mean, the guy has worked a lot since uh, the 1970s and, um, I appreciate that. We are going to, I have reviewed, this is how you'll get a sense I like Blade Runner. I'm going to, I've set aside three times where I'm going to review it. This will be the second time. I uh, reviewed the uh, original cut. This is the final cut is the one that we're going to be reviewing. Whether that's going to make much difference or not in our reviews, I don't know. Then we're going to take a look at uh, 1991's Thelma and Louise, followed by Hannibal, then American Gangster, then we go to Prometheus, and then we're going to end off with The Martian. Thank you so much. Uh, anything else you want to say about uh, Ridley in general before we get into the reviews? No, just just to reiterate, like this is just, we're just scratching the surface with this, these six films. But I do think, I agree, it's a really great sampling. It's like, this is like a little like chocolate box assortment of Ridley Scott movies that we're talking about. They're each a little different and they span a couple different, you know, a few different decades. And to also look for those connecting threads. This is going to be fun. There, there's a few. Yeah, there's a few themes that pop up that I, I hadn't even marked really until I watched all six of these really close together. So, so let's get into talking about Blade Runner, the final cut. Kind of nervous when I take tests. Take tests. Oh, 
I've got four skin jobs walking the streets, walking the streets. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit, it's not my problem. Not my problem. I'm Rachel. Deckard. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? By mistake, by mistake. No. I need the old Blade Runner. Blade Runner. This is a bad, bad. How can it not know what it is? If only you could see what I've seen, what I've seen, what I've seen. More human than human is our motto. What if I go north? Disappear. Would you come after me? I owe you one, but somebody would. It's too bad she won't live! To die. Will you help us? What seems to be the problem? Death. I want more life. An experiment. Nothing more. Nothing more. More human than human is our motto. Okay, so uh, Ridley Scott has released three different versions of Blade Runner. Uh, originally, 1982, I believe, was the first release. Then uh, 10 years later, 1992, the director's cut. I think that one probably had the most significant changes from version to version. Uh, and then he released the final cut. And at the time, I was thinking, okay, is this just a like a cash grab? I know a few other directors, Coppola in particular, have done this the last few years with Apocalypse Now and The Godfather Part 3. But somehow when I, I ended up seeing the final cut in, in theaters, not when it originally came out, but it was just part of this retro festival. Mm. And I, there was something, because I had I had watched the director's cut, similar type of thing when I was in university, when they were having a science fiction movie festival type of thing. And that was my first time watching Blade Runner was the director's cut. And there was something where like it just felt so smooth. you know. And I had watched it before, and I, I felt like I was trying to understand, or I don't know, maybe trying to uh, figure out the movie. And you know, I knew everything that was going to happen in the final cut, but there just seemed some, to be something a little bit smoother about it, even than even more than maybe the director's cut. Yet I can't completely, I had to actually look up the differences between the director's cut and final cut. Essentially, it's the level of violence. Uh, Ridley Scott was able to put in as much of the violence as he originally wanted to have that still under the director's cut, the studio had some, some say in. But unlike when I reviewed the uh, original cut, big differences, Harrison Ford's voiceover narration is gone, and a, in my biased opinion, ridiculous end sequence uh, <laughs> that, again, I, I and it just it looked it did look so forced, and it looked like it was from a completely yeah. different film. So I think any those moves were were I've heard various opinions on this, but those were good moves to make, and there wasn't anything like that that was brought back into the final cut. So 
I really love all of the versions of Blade Runner, and I like watching. I, there's actually four versions. I guess there's a European version, which I've never watched. Yes, there's technically five. Five, okay. So there's the U.S. theatrical release. Yeah. There's the international international theatrical release. Okay. There's the director's cut. There's the final cut. And then there's also the work print version. I recently bought, got a copy of the Blu-ray that has all five. I have that one too. I, I just haven't watched <laughs> those other ones. And I thought it'd be ridiculous uh, in the five episodes where I thought I'll, I'll, I'll pick these yeah. three. Probably I don't need the international cut or the, no, no. the blueprint, but, uh, but yeah, it, it is, it is one of my favorite science fiction movies. And I talked a lot about it on a previous episode that folks can listen to. So I'm a lot more interested in hearing your thoughts on it. Uh, than mine for for this particular review so this film is a masterpiece in my opinion i love it i much like yourself i enjoy all the versions of this that i've seen i haven't seen the work print yet but i and i don't think i've seen the international or maybe i did once my my introduction to the film back in the day was the u.s theatrical release okay that was how i was introduced to blade runner the final cut has become my preferred version and it is interesting because you have the director's cut so people usually assume a director's cut would be this is what the director director wanted in the case of blade runner the final cut is the version where ridley scott had the most control and say over the finished product and like as you mentioned yeah he was able to restore some of those scenes you know the level of violence and so the the final cut has become my my version of choice but i do kind of like the narration of the of the original theatrical cut. It's kind of fun. I agree with you on the ending. I prefer the final cut ending. This film to me is just so iconic and it's really a showcase and very representative to me of the elements that I love most about Ridley Scott's work. And when I think about his filmography and some of my favorite films, this film, Alien, Legend, there's a the way that he approaches cinema, like his aesthetic, his approach to creating these visual landscapes, his approach to world building. It's one of my favorite things. And so it's no surprise that some of my favorite Ridley Scott films, which also happen to be some of my favorite films of all time, all kind of share. You can see the places where that world building and his sense of cre creating these visual landscapes is just so pronounced and so unique. It's what he does. To me, it's what he does best. And it's really on display here with Blade Runner. Well, and to think about that, I mean, he had a movie, The Duelists. That was his first film. But after that, Alien, Blade Runner, and Legend. I mean, people would die to have those three movies in their yeah. career. And that was his second, third, and fourth films. Now, what's interesting about two of them is that when they first came out, and even I think Legend still is not really that recognized a film. So that was nice to highlight it on uh, on Matt's show. And I have since bought that that Arrow release there. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, it's a it's a great just a great package, and the and the movie looks fantastic. So I'm looking forward to you know having a show someday where I am able to you know, promote it a little bit more. But the creativity of those three, Alien, of course, successful from the beginning till now and was an instant classic. 
Blade Runner had to build up. It almost had to be like a, a bit of a cult following. I'm not sure it did that well in theaters. Critics didn't get it. Um, not a big surprise, I guess. But over time, <laughs> it, it built to this place where it's now a classic. And just Legend, for some reason, didn't get that push that Blade Runner did, either through the home video market or, or whatever. But still, I mean, just to just objectively to look at those three films, I, I mean, I'd be set for life if I... <laughs> If I'd made one of those films, I'd be set for life. Never mind. Absolutely. Three. No, definitely. And I I think, you know, the thing about Blade Runner, and it's it's something that comes back in some of the films we'll talk about today and, and others that we won't talk about, but that people should definitely go and explore. Ridley Scott loves kind of tackling these big themes, you know, and in Blade Runner, things like what makes us human and how does memory impact our humanity and our experience of being human and that's big heady stuff like there's some very cerebral elements to this film that yeah. it can be a little difficult for people to access if they're if if when they sat down they just thought oh, I want to watch a fun sci-fi movie it's it's a little headier than that. Those who wanted Star Wars, they were going Harrison Ford's, the Star they're looking for Star right. Wars. This wasn't Star Wars. No. And also, it's a big mistake to watch this movie once. It has to be watched. I get something different and something new out of it every time I watch it. And I've watched this one a lot. I, I, I just really, really admire it. And I think Ridley Scott's a very bright man. I, I listened to the commentary for the final cut. The, the only thing is I... He, he's talking, he's more interested in some ideas and different aspects. And that's what he's talking about. That's why his movies, I think, are so detailed and technically strong, but sometimes get accused of not being as good and maybe on the screenplay level at points. Because I kind of am interested, okay, so what happened on that day when you shot that sequence? And he's talking about the ideas and the larger yeah. themes he wanted to put out into the, the world with Blade Runner. It makes sense that he is this intelligent in the movies that he makes even though he does work in very familiar genre cinema. Yeah, if, if, we didn't really talk about plot, assuming that people know what this is, but <laughs> essentially Harrison Ford is is a Blade Runner who is supposed to track down and kill replicants who are these androids that look so much like human beings and feel like human beings and dream like human beings, and, but they're supposed to be on another planet and they are treated like slaves. Some of the replicants escape on a ship and end up in Los Angeles in the year 2020, if they only knew. <laughs> there, but I didn't see them with the masks on in that that version of 2020 but uh yeah and so then it's a, it's about this but you, you never quite know where you are in the film which i think is really great and it is done as a mix of science fiction and a film noir hence the the, the voiceover which was in the original i again i don't know i've heard some theories that harrison ford tanked it on purpose because he thought it was so stupid i i, I don't he know he hated I, the narration he hated yeah. doing it he had I, I been i think he had been told they weren't going to do narration and then they went back on that and he had no. it had to do the narration and he hated it. Yeah, so he went through it. I'm sure he still tried. I mean, he's a professional actor. I, oh, you know, yeah. Of the two elements from the original that I wanted to see go, you know, I I can get by with the narration, but I, I don't 
I can watch it with, I can watch it without. But I, I think that's maybe one of the, in the final cut, why I just found it kind of smooth because I wasn't taken away sometimes by, by that. And also thinking to myself, did he enjoy doing this or was he forced to do this or mm. all that movie nerd knowledge? That's more me than the film. The ending is so much more interesting. And I mean, I did not know the first time I saw it because I, I didn't see it with that ending for, from the uh, original uh version that's the end what what just happened <laughs> you know, the origami and 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 then I, because i wasn't i was just trying to get the story i wasn't following all the details of it and then i'm like wow once i got it i like that's absolutely brilliant yes Ridley, that's where the movie should end. You're absolutely yeah. right. And so, so sometimes I even, I, I know that there's an other ending, but I forget that it exists. I, I just don't know what they're doing, but it, it just felt like, yeah, it does feel I, like a studio thing more than a, an actual service to the movie. So Absolutely. Well, and I, I think that's one of the biggest, kind of both of the things you touched on, the biggest differences between the original theatrical release and this final cut. And and I think they both stem from the same reason. They, I think they both come from the same kind of... I think when you look at the source material, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, you know, all, there's a lot of... There, there's a lot more to the world building in the book about what the state of life is like on Earth and the contrast between people that are stuck on Earth and people that have moved on to these other world colonies and the use of the slave replicant labor to enable that colonization. There's like this whole thing in the mm -hmm. book. And I think when you watch the, the theatrical cut, a lot of what that narration is doing is trying to fill in some of the blanks and give you exposition from stuff that was in the book to kind of imp superimpose that on the film without having to actually like show you, I think. And then you get the happy, you know, the happy ending, a more spelled out happy ending in that original. I think what's beautiful about the final cut and the reason that it's become my preferred watch is Ridley Scott just gets to do the world building with what he can show you. And we just get thrown right into the middle of this futuristic America, a city in, in this future America. And you pick up little bits and pieces that let you know that this is a dystopia and it doesn't have to be spelled out in this big exposition dump. You just, all of the little lived in details of the sets and the way that the city moves and the way that the characters interact, you start to pick up on what the world is like and what it means for the people living in it and what it means for the replicants. And I think that ending in the final cut, where it ends leaving a more open-ended conclusion fits in better with the themes of this story. It fits in better with asking you to experience this and to draw your own conclusion. Yeah. And I, I think that original theatrical cut, I think they were trying to do some handholding. Mm -hmm. They wanted to handhold audiences to tell them what to think the story was about. And I think the final cut is more in line with Ridley Scott's wanting to present these big themes. And then it's up to you as a viewer to interpret them, to think about them, to mull them over and come to your own conclusion. I, I think, you know, studios are afraid of something like that. They they really are oh, afraid. Yeah. I didn't get it. 
and then they're going to lose money and they they really want that that hand holding is a good good way to put it they want that hand holding so that it will be successful not recognizing that true art requires interpretation imagine for a moment if if with 2001 a space odyssey there had to be a narrator right. <laughs> explaining every moment of that and at the end dave ends up meeting the woman of his dreams and flying off <laughs> how bad that would be and fortunately for Kubrick got to do whatever he wanted again I'm still not quite sure how he was able to, to, to pull it off but he he did at that point this is the the second film or sorry the third film from Ridley Scott I, I mean I think Alien announced him as a major filmmaker and gave him a bit of clout but obviously not enough clout to have that kind of a say in but even though even with with legend in in some ways too there's there's two very different versions yes out there and that, it just seems to be the way like he most of his movies have a director's cut and it's not like some you know a couple things here or there like they are significantly different versions with a lot of his movies and I'm, I'm just curious with the last duel and and house of gucci and you know uh, maybe in 10 years he'll say oh here's the director's cut or the final cut of the martian or something something like that he's gonna <laughs> <laughs> one of these other movies and say i'm not i'm not sure he's that invested in in those but he he recognizes that blade runner is is one of the movies it and alien are probably the ones that he's gonna be most known for uh, when all is said and done and oh so definitely maybe- and they're hard sci-fi and i i think sometimes with those very distinctive genre films like science fiction or like hardcore fantasy i think there can be trepidation that people aren't going to get it that it's too niche that only like the diehard nerds are going to be into it so that kind of watering down process or the trying to you know make something more mass appeal you know so Mm -hmm. i i think some of those films definitely there's a hint of that of that wanting to take something that's that's very very genre and i think that there was a push to make it more mainstream mainstream palatable and i i think too i think and this is kind of the cool thing thinking about it and i ha- i don't know that i'd thought about it in this way i think some of his early films as much pushback as they got for being so hard sci-fi hard fantasy mm-hmm. they paved the way for mainstream audiences to eventually be more open to those things and i think more filmmakers have some more latitude to do science fiction to do fantasy to do some of those those genre things with a little more freedom now yeah i i think if it hadn't been for alien and, and blade runner in particular that that wouldn't have happened so anyway i mean i we managed to talk about a movie that's been talked about a lot here but <laughs> anything else you want to say about blade runner i, I mean i'm happy we both really love it so that's, that's yeah i i just i just love it. it it's very much an experience and that's something that i really enjoy in a film when and i and don't get me wrong i love a really well plotted out narrative that's great narrative storytelling but i also can really get behind something that you watch it and you're transported and the Vangelis score for this movie is so gorgeous and it it just it takes me into this world puts me right in the center of it and this movie it feels like hopping in a time travel spaceship 
and then landing on this future version and just being right in the center of it. And I think that's one of the things that Ridley Scott does best. Mm -hmm. And I think Blade Runner is one of the instances where he where he did that to the greatest effect. Yeah, it has aged well. And yeah, it's almost comforting when you see that opening sequence and you're just like, okay, I can just relax and enjoy this. When I'm not thinking, yeah. oh, I have to I have to review it and I'm writing notes and that kind of stuff. Right. So. Yeah. You can just experience it in this this amazing cast yeah. of very just iconic actors it's yeah. it's just it's beautiful and i i mentioned it before i i think you know it's kind of too bad what happened with sean young's career but yeah man she's good in it oh like, yeah like they're all they're all really good but that's just a performance i keep going back to and yeah she had a, a nice run for several years there but i i think she should be somebody now that is like among these these great actors but i, I don't think she was kind of at a certain point given a chance to do that in the pressures of 1980s and 90s hollywood um and what what that did it's unfortunate but uh i just look at that performance and that was i th believe that was her first movie and she holds her own with Harrison Ford, who at the time yeah. was the biggest movie star in the world, and just several several great actors. Yeah, I mean, you can talk about this movie forever, but it, it, is, oh, it yeah. is great, and obviously it's going to earn a lot of points on my mine, and I'm, I'm guessing probably on yours. Well. <laughs> I, I think that's a, a safe bet. Thelma. I'll get it! Thelma, I've not told you I can't stand it when you holler in the morning. I'm sorry, darling. I just didn't want you to be late. Hey, how you doing, little housewife? Louise. Yeah, I still have to ask Daryl if I can go. You mean you haven't asked him yet? Thelma, is he your husband or your father? Thelma and Louise are going fishing. How come Daryl let you go? Because I didn't ask him. <laughs> He's going to kill you! I left him a note. <laughs> Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma! Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? Did you see his butt? <laughs> Thelma, have you lost your mind? Woo! I'm uh, Investigator Howard Slocum, Arkansas State Police. You get your butt back here, Thelma, now. As you know, we've tapped your phone. What? Maybe you got a few too many parking tickets. Uh, tell me what happened. You're getting in deeper every moment you're gone. You want to step back and get in your car again, please? Now, I swear, three days ago, neither one of us would have ever pulled a stunt like this, but if you was able to meet my husband, you'd understand why. What? Boys, shoot the radio. The police radio, Louise. Got it. Thelma and Louise. How do you like the vacation so far? <laughs> we'll be drinking margaritas by the sea, Mama Cita. I think I knew about Thelma and Louise before I knew who Ridley Scott was. In 1991, I've mentioned to people, is a very important year. That's when I, you know, invested completely into being a movie geek for the rest of my life. I, I hadn't been completely aware of all of the movies and I wasn't able to see everything. But it was kind of like at the end of that year, I started getting interested in the uh, JFK is a very important movie to me. So mm -hmm. I, then I wanted to see all the movies that were nominated around that time. And Thelma and Louise was an interesting 
interesting one. That's one of those those one head scratchers in a sense. It, it was nominated, obviously, for it won best original screenplay for uh, Callie Corey, and that was her her first produced screenplay. And Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon nominated for Best Actress, nominated several tech awards. I think it was up for editing and, and cinematography. Ridley Scott, uh, again, th- this is one of the ones where when I look at the filmography, Ridley Scott directed Thelma and Louise. You know, some people don't think of that as much. but uh, I forget got, it all he, the time. He got nominated for Best Director. But the film didn't get a Best Picture nomination, but it was a strong year. I think that that's one where this 10 nomination structure would have made sense. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of it myself, and I, I do like that idea of five, and it's kind of a an honored thing to get a, even a Best Picture nomination. But uh, it, it didn't get to the Best Picture, but it was nominated in several categories and, and won the Writing Award. And I saw it, and it was, I mean, it, it, it kind of blew my mind when I first when I first looked at it and every time I, I go back to see it and again another one of these retro movie things happened a few years ago in Thelma and Louise I, I did, had never had the chance to see it in theaters so it is a movie that's grown and grown and grown and grown on me and I again I got that little preview from the other show that we might might be in different places on this one I'll give you a hint how much I love Thelma and Louise I, I decided I've watched this so many times. I'm going to listen to the commentary. I'd already listened to the Ridley Scott Blade Runner commentary. And I, I feel like I need a commentary with a little bit more life. So it was Callie Curry, Gina Davis, and Susan Sarandon. But Ridley had a separate one. At the end of the mm-hmm. commentary track, I had such a good time watching it and listening to the thoughts that these women had that I listened to Ridley's commentary <laughs> track. So I actually watched the movie twice in a row this past week. <laughs> Not that I had the time to do it, but I did anyway, because I love Thelma and Louise that much. I'll do a quick thing on plot here, and then I'll uh, I'll let you give your opinion. So Thelma and Louise are two friends. Thelma is an unhappy housewife. Louise is a a waitress who's very much and kind of uptight, a bit of a control freak. And they're going away for the weekend. Thelma has not asked the permission of her husband and decides to go anyway and they're just gaining and they decide to have an impromptu stop just go go get a drink at this country western bar and uh Thelma who has not been able to let loose for a long time decides she's gonna have this great weekend she's gonna drink a little bit more than she normally would and she's going to accept the flirtation of the cowboys that are around her and do some line dancing and all of that. But eventually it's time to go. And Louise can't find Thelma and goes out in the parking lot and discovers in the most hard to watch scene in the film, no matter how many times I watch this, I just, I I find it very difficult scene where Thelma is, is being raped by this cowboy who she's been dancing with. And that leads to kind of a tragic event which has Thelma and Louise running from the law for basically the rest of the film and just examining their relationships and their places in the world. And you think there's a lot of flashy stuff with Thelma and Gina Davis is amazing. I'm a big Gina Davis fan and I love her work in this. But Sarandon as Louise, you're just kind of like everything about the first act and how she is makes sense as we build up later to a reveal that is really important to understanding everything that she did when she encountered this uh, this man raping uh, Thelma. And so there's there's a lot of dark elements to the film, but there's also a lot of humor. There's a lot of life. And there's some wonderful performances, not just from Sarandon and, and Davis. Um, a, l- a lot of good roles for men, you know, big surprise, good roles for men. But uh, good roles for men. But I, there was a real thought 
from Cali Curry about all of these men were supposed to sort of, at least in the 1991 context, or she kind of wrote it in the eighties a little bit. It took a while to get produced, but the spectrum of, of men that she had encountered everybody from Harvey Keitel, who in some ways is considered the antagonist of the film because he's the main police officer who's trying to bring them in, but he, he gets what's happening and he's trying to, you know, do his job, but also do the right thing here because he knows what happened all the way to Brad Pitt in a breakthrough role. I don't think Brad Pitt would have had a career if it wasn't for this one as this uh, attractive con artist bank robber who Thelma takes to, as the film says. And yeah, he's friendly, he's nice and everything, but he's also does things to benefit himself and doesn't really think about the way that he uses the women in the movie. And then we have Michael Madsen, who is this, he's always kind of playing Michael Madsen as uh, Louise's boyfriend, who's strung her along for a long time, but he just doesn't get her. And he just doesn't know, like he seems more aware and more mature than some of the other men that are portrayed in the film. But but yet he is so off base. And we see this in, in a, a key scene in the middle of the film between him and Sarandon, which is really good. And then Christopher McDonald, I've come around, I think the first time I saw it, I, I mistook not liking the character with uh, not liking the performance. I think mm. Christopher McDonald is really good as Thelma's husband, but he's basically a buffoon. And he's, yes. he really is there as comic relief. I mean, he has some, there is some great detail in what he did. I guess from listening to the commentary track, you see a lot of shots of Harvey Keitel's character in scenes with him laughing because Harvey could not could not keep a straight face in these scenes with Christopher McDonald. He just cracked him up all the time. So they had to use some of these reactions and make them make sense that uh, that Keitel's character just was was so amused by uh, uh, this buffoon. But the heart of it is Thelma and Louise and their their relationship. And it's it's just they're like one almost one complete person between the two of them. And in their journey, I always hope for something different once we get to the climax of the film. But it's there's something. It, it's it's freedom in some ways, yet it's kind of interesting how freedom is expressed. I'm going to stop now because I am I'm gushing about the movie. <laughs> we need another person. This is why I have somebody else on with me. <laughs> Otherwise, it would just be <laughs> me ranting. No, and I'm I'm glad that you expressed your love and enjoyment and appreciation for this film yeah. because I'm about to break some hearts. <laughs> That's fine. I. I'm not a fan of this movie. Okay, so here's the history. When this came out, it was huge. I mean, it was it was everywhere. And then, of course, you know, it got nominated for awards. So, I mean, you just could not get away from it. And I, I think for me, when this first came out and then over the years, this only snowballed. The hype around it kind of turned me off a little mm. bit. It was mm. just like, ugh, sick of hearing about this movie. And so over the years, I had seen the movie before, but never in one start to finish sitting. 30 minutes here on TV, 20 minutes there on TV, 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. And it just never did it for me. And I think watching it this time, sitting down and committing to watching it from start to finish and having an eye to where it sits in Ridley Scott's body of work, which as I mentioned before, I always forget that he directed this like completely. Yeah. Every time I'm, I'm reminded, I go, oh, wow. Oh, wait, you do that. You just completely forgot. I was able this time to see, okay, I, I see some of the things that are there to appreciate about this film. It's still not my kind of movie. 
still like thematically it doesn't really appeal to me but i think some of the the themes and the way that they're presented here ridley scott and the team of people he's got on this thing elevate it something that could have very easily ended up looking like a hallmark movie or a lifetime movie or a made for tv movie because the plot of this thing very much like one of those kind of made for tv movies which is not necessarily a bad thing i think ridley scott his visual style i really picked up on this time around not thinking about the narrative but just kind of trying to experience it like i like to do you know his the landscape shots as they're driving and all of the little lived in sets that really feel like real working class people live and the, and the characters they meet on the road and the places where they stop it all feels very authentic i was able to really appreciate that about it this time and and the cast is amazing so as much as this film doesn't really do it for me there is no denying for me that this cast is great harvey keitel is great here as you mentioned a very nuanced character mm -hmm. which you don't always get for the 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 detective lawman that's yeah. going after the fugitives but you do it does come through that he has some empathy and that he wants to bring them in alive and he wants to try and he does want to try and help them within the confines of the law you know the relationship between Thelma and Louise is one that I they to me they kind of remind me of sisters more than friends there, there is that I agree. There's yeah. almost, there's like a, a a sisterhood between these two. And it reminds me, you know, when people have just very different personalities and approaches to things mm -hmm. and they and they kind of balance each other out, but <laughs> they're dynamic like okay, I just need to say this. <laughs> I just have to say this. Thelma drives me crazy. Thelma, I'm more of a Louise, I think, personality-wise, mm -hmm. and Thelma kind of drives me crazy. I I just oh. heard I I watched the old Siskel and Ebert review of it. Uh -huh. And Gene Siskel said the same thing, and he gave a thumbs down to the movie, actually, too, mm. which I don't know where, like, in the thumb system, if you would have your thumb down for this or not, but had talked about that. that he, he liked Susan Sarandon, and he liked Louise um, a, a lot more. I, Gina I Davis is great, though. Her performance yeah. is wonderful, and that's Here, part of why. <laughs> it's part of why I think the Thelma character gets under my skin so much is because she's giving this really wonderful performance and, and yeah, the yeah. complexities of that character come through and she drives me crazy. I, I believe that she, I don't think she was a cartoon. I think she was, No. you know, there are, and probably still a lot of women who are, who are like her, you know, I, and, and maybe are not, to me, it's the whole thing. She should be aware of her surroundings and, you know, she, she gets them into trouble by talking too much and giving too much information to, to usually, <laughs> usually men or whatever. But she should be able to have a good time and go dancing and oh, absolutely, and yeah. None of none of the assault that occurs is not her fault. Yeah, no, she doesn't no. deserve it. She wasn't asking for it. None of that is her fault. No, I think for me the thing about Thelma is. I guess maybe her her impulsiveness, like she doesn't think things through, like when she robs the store. <laughs> like prior to her robbing the store, yeah. I mean, you guys are in some, you're in deep. This is yeah. serious. But running from the scene of the shooting, you can still, like there's some mitigating factors for what happened that yeah. you maybe could have with a good lawyer talked yourself into an acceptable plea deal. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you weren't like, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that you're going to do life. Now you've committed armed robbery. Yeah. <laughs> 
So <laughs> it's little things like that that I'm like, girl, please stop. Don't do that. Yeah. So yeah. But that's that's yeah. like my personality. Like you mentioned the sister idea. I've also heard of it being a mother daughter dynamic. Yeah, and, yeah. And half of the film, really, Louise is the film's mother. Yeah. She needs somebody looking out for her. And that scene you're talking about is things have completely fallen apart. And Louise now is almost catatonic. There's this nice moment yeah. like I love how they do th that robbery that we see it on videotape later, but we, we, we just see she goes into the store and then we, we just see Louise in the car and she, and then she's looking at these two older women. I, I had a different take on what that meant uh, than when I, when I heard the commentary and what, what they were in, intending it to be. Uh, I always thought, well, she, she's aware now that they're probably not going to get out of this alive. And then she's looking at, okay, there's these two older women. She's not going to be able to get to that place in her life. But they, they had some different ideas there. But I love that scene so much in Sarandon's performance. But that was the moment where the role switched. And in yes. some ways, Thelma becomes the mother, Louise, and starts to take control. And this is like a freedom for her because she's always, you get the sense that her father maybe controlled her. Her husband controls her every move. We, we know that. And he has no business. He's such an idiot, but he he does. And he's such a jerk. Yeah. And then like even when he goes, she goes with her friend, then she really has to rely on Louise to look after her as well. Now she finally is able to look after somebody else and take some control, which she kind of does for yeah. the rest of the film. She finally but, feels like she has agency. But she's now committed a federal crime and the FBI is, <laughs> there's nothing Harvey Keitel can do at this point. So you're right. It is a yeah. stupid decision. It was a stupid decision to tell her entire life story to Brad Pitt's character too. She's just looking to <laughs> get laid basically. And and she created the crisis. But then all of a sudden, like, this experience has put her in this new gear. We're like, okay, come on. We, we know what we need to do. Let's go. Let's go, Louise. And then she carries her. And then together, they kind of figure it out for the third act of the film. I guess I, I'm also a sucker for, like, Southwestern movies. Um, yeah. the, I mean, the landscape's beautiful. Those mm -hmm. night shots, the cinematography. And uh, the other piece is the music. You know, and I just love the music choices all throughout. And that You're a Part of Me song, I don't know why. I, I still love hearing that one. There's still something, I don't know, some emotional thing that connects me to it. So I guess this movie had me. I, it was probably 1992 on video before I saw it. I don't think I saw it in 1991. I think it had me from the beginning. And as I've gotten older and older and a little bit more aware of it, I, I think I was just kind of like, oh, I, I know these two actors and wow, they're cool. And look at this. I wasn't thinking, I, I still was would watch it. And I, I seemed as, as vexed, I think, as those who created it, that it caused a controversy. Mm. And I, I don't know. And I'm not sure if I show this to, to young people today that they would understand what the big deal is said that the the male characters were treated horribly or that's not true at all that is i i don't i don't understand that criticism of the movie if it's not your thing it's not something you enjoy i appreciate that ridley scott has an academy award winning best picture winning film called gladiator i hate gladiator <laughs> i with all every fiber of my being and it, it it sounds like it it Thelma and Louise bugged you in the way that Gladiator bugs me because That's what it sounds the, like. Out, then I spend a year of it being the you know it's the best picture of the year. It was not in any way, shape, or form the best movie of the year. When a movie gets celebrated like this and you really don't like it, I know that's just such a pain. It's just 
just just just bugged you so much. So I yeah, it kind of compounds. Yeah, it does. Because I, I think initially it's like, oh, this isn't something I'm really interested in thematically yeah. or or whatever. Like I'm yeah. I'm just not really into that. And then if the hype gets loud enough and strong enough and sustained, it's like then I'm just like, ugh. Now yeah. I just out of spite. I want nothing to do with this out of spite. But no, I I do recognize kind of the the place this film has in film history. And what it means to a lot of people, like a lot of people feel very connected to Thelma mm -hmm. and Louise and this story and kind of those bigger themes of female friendship, of sisterhood and and uh, freedom and independence and having agency. And and so I can recognize how important this film is. And I I recognize that the cast is brilliant and that Ridley Scott was able to really kind of elevate this and make it really grand and cinematic. Something that he could have got, you know, a, a director could have got away with kind of doing, kind of making it just kind of face value, kind of whatever. For for another episode, I recently watched The uh, Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, which uh -huh. was... Uh, written and directed by Callie Curry. And so obviously I'm a fan of this screenplay and I'm happy that she she did well with it. And then watching that movie, and it was just like right after I saw Thelma and Louise, and I'd forgotten, I had actually forgotten she was a writer-director and it went at the end, it's like, oh, this is so ironic that I'm talking about, you know, these very different movies, yet yeah. the same. I know there was the source material for, for, for that. And at an early stage, Callie Curry was thinking about, she was trying to sell that she'd be the writer and director of it, which, but she just didn't have enough clout to make that happen and says it would have been a pretty independent film that wouldn't have gotten the attention it did. I, I just realized watching that, not to tip my hand with what my review of that movie is going to be like, but how good it was that she didn't direct this and that Ridley Scott did. That said, I, I I don't know. I, I think there are many very talented female directors who could have also got something a little bit different out of this. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I think as far as like some of the visual stuff that they, the, the shot that they talk about being such a Ridley moment was there's that moment where Louise takes the car and puts it in reverse and they just speed back and like land right at the, the gas station. And <laughs> there's some sort of like a, a fire going on in the background. Yeah oil thing or whatever so like this that was the one that that looks like a ridley scott moment for sure I, I i really don't think if you don't know it's not one that you can easily identify as as being one of his movies and i, I think he he serves the story and he serves it well i happen to really enjoy Thelma and louise and always have and so it's it's going to earn quite a few points for me i'm sensing maybe not as many from you but I'm, thank you for watching it for this i, I no, know i'm i'm glad that i did because it actually just committing to sitting down from start to finish not tapping out or hopping on my phone to do something else or walking away and not pausing it like just really committing to sitting down and focusing on the film and taking it in earnestly i can see all of the wonderful things about this film even though it's not really my thing i can appreciate the merits of this film i may never see it again uh, and spoiler alert, I didn't give it very many points. But this is the beauty of the point system. It all evens out. Yeah. Just, you yeah. gave it a lot of points. It didn't need a lot of points for me because you gave it a lot of points. The person I'm looking for is quite well known. He's killed 14 people that we know of. 
You ever think he might come after you? Well, at least 30 seconds of every day. Hello? Is this Clarice? Ah, hello, Clarice. I've been in a state of hibernation. I need some action, Clarice. I need to come out of retirement and return to public life. I couldn't help noticing on the FBI's rather dull public website that I have been elevated to the more prestigious 10 most wanted list. Is this coincidence, or are you back on the case? If so, goody goody. I have information about Animal Lecter. <laughs> Fantastic. You're trying to catch him yourself, aren't you? He killed three policemen while in custody. Turn the face off one of them and he will kill you too. Hey, by any chance, trying to trace my whereabouts? You naughty girl. giving very serious thought to eating your wife. I'm not the only one in the world who's an enormous fan of 1991s. We were just talking about 1991 with Thelma and Louise, but big year for movies for me, but The Silence of the Lambs. And it was only 10 years, which now feels like only 10 years because of the age I am now. But from the age I was when I saw Silence of the Lambs to when I saw Hannibal in the movie theater, it felt like an eternity for this movie to come out, but also the the, the promised book by Thomas Harris, Hannibal. And book obviously came out first i read it picked it up right away read it and i'm glad i wasn't like looking at some of the reviews from back then too i wasn't the only one to acknowledge it when i read it this is he's written this book that's unfilmable like mm. and in many ways i feel like he's pressured to bring out the book because they want to make more hannibal lecter movies or follow clarice and hannibal because of how they left the end of the silence of the lambs i don't know maybe thomas harris is like i don't care about that stuff and i'm gonna make something that's and he really that book went in a different direction and what's amazing about Hannibal as directed by Ridley Scott as opposed to Jonathan Demme and instead of Ted Talley penning this one it was David Mamet David Mamet and Steven Zalian what a strange combination to write a screenplay but uh, <laughs> they actually were pretty true up to a, a certain key moment with the book and so maybe that's why my initial thing was I liked Hannibal I'd never say that I liked it more than Silence of the Lambs don't get me wrong on that but I liked Hannibal a lot because it did all of these things that I didn't think were possible and it stayed true to the material and the thing they change is I think one of the biggest mistakes that Thomas Harris makes with this story and what he does which is you can 
could say fairly unforgivable with Clarice Starling character, considering what she meant. Uh, I think there was a little bit of projection onto Clarice Starling after Silence of the Lambs as being a, a bit of a, a a feminist hero in in that uh, in that film, uh, and took that character and and totally changed what happened. And her connection to Hannibal Lecter became something perhaps like bizarre or less interesting. So so I guess I'm still kind of in the point where I'm just amazed by the performances, the look of it. Yet, this is one where I talk about Thelma and Louise gets better and better for me. The more I watch Hannibal, the more I see the problems with it. Yet, I still can't say that I don't like this movie. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with what they were able to accomplish and the look of it. And the section in, in Florence in Italy is a movie unto itself, which was very interesting, probably more interesting than, than the Clarice Starling part of it. Uh, the other piece that I think is I'll get back to something positive in a moment, but something that didn't work, just really didn't work, as good as Julianne Moore is. She's one of our great actors. She is not a great Clarice Starling. She seems stiff. She seems uncomfortable in the role and some of the line readings, which is not normal for her. And I think this this, this became Jodie Foster's role. And to do it without Jodie Foster was a mistake. I don't know if they could have ever convinced her to do this movie. Probably not. Uh, or if they had to pay her more. I don't know what, but to do it without there was one uh, I think it might have been Richard Roper back in the day said this isn't like a James Bond where you can find somebody else to play the role it that really doesn't work what does work and it was I mean a very much a surprise and is still kind of an uncredited role is the unrecognizable work by Gary Oldman who is one of the most interesting villains still that I've ever seen and his scenes are so strange and creepy and have so much thing so much going on he's essentially admits to being a pedophile but he talks about being saved by Jesus yet he is making his life work and he has endless money to try to capture Hannibal Lecter and get revenge on what he did which we see in a very graphic flashback where Lecter essentially drugged him and made him cut off his own face and feed it to his dogs and and that's the second most grisly sequence in this film so it is a gore festival it is a true horror movie it shows like like Ridley like Alien is a science fi fiction horror movie which is a lot of gore but this is a straight up horror movie and I defend it I guess but I will not I will not I will understand it if you have a lot of critical things to say about it. So this is one of those ones I know is not the most beloved Ridley Scott film. So yeah, and sadly, I'm I'm in that camp yeah. <laughs> with, with folks who who have some issues with this. So I'm I'm going to start by saying this. I think to follow up Silence of the Lambs was always going to be difficult. <laughs> Didn't matter who you put on this project. It was going to be, uh, it's a hard act to follow. That film was so, I mean, just so groundbreaking and and so seared into people's brains. It's it's really difficult to follow that up. I think, you know, watching Hannibal in preparation for this, I was thinking about, I was contrasting it with the Hannibal television series. And I haven't watched that. So I did and I loved it. And that series was one that I was, I had some trepidation because I was afraid that like, I just don't know. I, you know, and I, and I haven't read the source material. I haven't read the books. And I think one of the things that the series got right that 
maybe Hannibal the movie that maybe doesn't work for people. I, I know that it didn't quite work for me. And it was, it does go back to the casting thing. And I think, you know, with the television series, it's like a whole new cast. And there's also, it's, there's the character of Will Graham is your protagonist rather than Clarice Starling. But, you know, it's a, it's a clean slate in terms of casting. So it, I'm, I'm able to kind of set Silence of the Lambs aside, think of the films as separate from the series because it is just completely different. And I think one of the difficulties here is Clarice is such an integral, important character. She's the protagonist mm -hmm. <laughs> to have that recast, but then also keep Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. It makes it stick out even more that Jodie Foster is not present. And yeah. it just doesn't feel right. It feels it feels kind of half-ass. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. Like, like, like who 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 would you say is being half-assed about it? I, I guess it's it's that I can't help but feel like there's a, a you know a money grab factor. Like, I agree. Yeah, on the studios' yeah. part, like we mm -hmm. need a sequel because yeah. Silence of the Lambs is so successful and we're going to make it no matter what. And I admittedly not really delved into the, the production history of this film. So that's just me kind of going on assumptions and speculation. But when I watch this, that's kind of what it feels like to me. I will say the whole, all of the Italian sequences are beautiful. There's some beautiful scenes in here. Anthony Hopkins never fails us. He's amazing. Oh, he has looks. Like, I don't know how he does it. Sorry, mm. I interrupted you there, but there no. are moments where he, he, you know, Hopkins makes himself look like a demon almost. I and it's yeah, he, and it's not like a special effect or anything. He just when, when they they show that video of him attacking the the nurse, which was alluded to in Silence of the Lambs, and that just is actually a quite a, a little bit of a jump scare sequence. But we see his eyes in that moment, and that uh, plays again during that Italian sequence when yeah. these hitmen that are coming to uh, to get him, and just before he attacks this guy, he just he just looks like the devil himself. And I, I just don't know how Hopkins does it. He, he is just so amazing at that. And this isn't one of his best performances by any stretch, but he's really good at playing Hannibal Lecter and that doesn't change there. Oh Sorry. yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, Go on with that. You mentioned Gary Oldman. Yeah, no. And so you've got this, this perfect marriage of Oldman being the powerhouse that he is and his mm -hmm. ability to transform into characters. And then on top of that, you put this, I mean, just amazing makeup and prosthetics. Yeah, it, it should have been it's up for great. an Oscar for that. I mean, I, I guess it's, horror movie makeup doesn't often get nominated, but this yeah. should have been. Yeah, that Mason Verger maimed <laughs> face makeup is just, it's incredible. And yeah, I mean, there's some great sequences in this film, no doubt. I mean, I, I totally agree. There's, there's some really cool sequences, some really fun, gory kills in this, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing, which I am. You know, yeah, I think I think really my issue is really one of, of having an expectation or <sighs> trying to hold this thing to a standard set by another film that it was never, never going to have. It was never going to be The Silence of the Lambs. It's just not possible. And so that's on, you know, I think a lot of that is on me. I think it's interesting to hear you talk about the source material and, and having read it that you thought it was something that couldn't be done. And I, I think one of the other challenges in watching this is they're trying to navigate the stuff happening with Clarice back in the U.S. 
and then these scenes in Europe and it it feels kind of mashed and kind of forced together it it feels a little disjointed and it and and I can tell even having not read the source material I can tell like I this feels like an adaptation problem like you're trying to put into one film something that's way more complicated and and needs more time to breathe which is another reason why I think the Hannibal television series was so successful as well is that you know with you know when you have a whole season two three seasons to tell a story it can breathe and you can have one whole episode that's dedicated to italy and then another episode that's dedicated to the states whereas when you're trying to do it all in one film it's difficult doesn't matter how skilled of a filmmaker you are it's gonna be kind of tricky and I mean, this was an A plus group. This was a top notch. They put everybody yeah. that they could into this. But but yeah, I as, and it's been a year since I read the novel. But if I remember correctly, the, the downfall of Clarice is kind of the first part of the book. Uh, mm. And then we and then we go to Italy, and it takes us a while to figure out. We we start hearing about this Doctor Fell character and this uh, Italian cop, and and then start to like, what does this have to do with anything at all? And they were like, oh, okay, so this is what. This is what Lecter has done, you know, right. and it's actually motivated. There, there are allusions to this in Silence of the Lambs, his obsession with Florence and 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 art and all that, which is played beautifully. There are two other really key performances here. One that gets better and better for me, and then one that I think I just because I like the actor, I liked a little bit more on initial viewings, but now I'm seeing he doesn't have much of a character, even though he's in one of the flashiest scenes in the film. But uh, this Italian actor Giancarlo Giannini, who mm. uh, is playing this older detective. He's kind of reached his peak in his profession. He doesn't have enough money to satisfy his young wife, yet she wants all of these things. And he lets his greed get the best of him. He sees what the reward is to capture Lecter. And when he realizes that Dr. Fell is Lecter, he tries to find some way to trap him. Also involving contacting this number, which leads to Mason Verger linking the, the stories together. That is such a good performance. It's understated. The more times... I've watched it and you may never want to see this movie again, but if you do, maybe <laughs> skip ahead and just watch those sequences and just watch yeah. what he, he is doing the whole time. He's thinking about it. It's it's maybe Oldman's role is very flashy and Hopkins is amazing and all that, but uh, I think he gives a really nuanced performance. Ray Liotta plays this world-class jerk who's, you know, yeah. has was trying to, he's married, but he's trying to... Uh, they give the idea that he was trying to sleep with Clarice Starling. She rejected him, and now he's trying to destroy her career. And he's also in league with Mason Verger. That, I, I like Ray Liotta so much. I always love seeing him in things. And maybe that's what blinded me to the fact that there isn't much mm. of a character there. Right. But we kind of are happy. You know, it's it's a sick thing that happens with these serial killer movies where we end up cheering for somebody like Lecter. And late in the movie, and I'm not sure I want to spoil the sequence yet it would be too gross for a lot of people. And I think it was a problematic thing, but it is exactly what's in the book. Like it is written and that's, I just wasn't sure how they were going to do. That's mostly the sequence of about how were they going to do that? That involves uh, Ray Liotta getting his comeuppance. And so I kind of enjoyed yeah. that. And Liotta does these charming little things in there, but again, I just don't think he has as much of a character as he does in some other pieces there. I'm happy to see him be part of it, but yeah, but that, again, I'm I'm looking at a few more, I'm being a bit more critical of it, I suppose, than I have been in the past. It was kind of on my list of some of my favorite horror mo- movies of the first decade of the 
21st century, but I think it's one that maybe gets weaker with each rewatch. Other than that Janini performance, I guess, and the fun of just watching Gary Oldman just have a ball. Like, yeah, there's there's this thing where he's he's sipping some juice at one point, and it is the most disturbing thing you have ever (laughs) seen. And when Clarice, the, the I think it's only one scene they have together, though, with uh, Julianne Moore and, and Gary Oldman. But when she's interviewing Verger and he turns on that light and they do this close up, they did a similar oh, thing. Oh, yeah. That's such a creepy shot. So there is enough to satisfy the, the horror movie fan in me and to be happy with the adaptation, even if I don't like completely the direction they go with Clarice. And they, they invented an ending for this. Right. What, what are your thoughts on the last scene? We don't have to go into too much detail, but that that last scene is kind of strange huh yeah it feels it feels i mean okay this is all make-believe it's all made up but yeah the ending feels a little forced it feels a little uh, i don't know i don't know about it i i I mean i think by that point i'm just kind of like okay like i'll just go along like whatever fine yeah it's i don't know man it's weird i think they didn't know how to end it i mean i right because they weren't going to they weren't going to go with what thomas harris did and nor should they where i guess maybe spoilers for the book but a full-on romance between starling and hannibal lecter maybe thomas harris wants that but i don't think anybody else in the world wants that that's not (laughs) right it's not really the point there even though there's this connection that they have in silence of the lambs that but that would not have worked at all so i don't I don't know if yeah. they had a, a winning idea or if there was a winning idea for the end of this film it, it creeps you out it's kind of this strange weird okay that was bizarre and then the movie's done i guess it works on that front but yeah <laughs> anyway I, I i'm not promising i'm giving tons of points i because i do i did say i like all of these movies to hannibal but i've defended it in the past and a little bit here i don't get the sense it's going to be getting a lot of points for you <laughs> it's not no man I worked for had one of the biggest companies in New York City. He didn't own his own company. White man owned it, so they owned him. Nobody owns me, though. The most important thing in business is honesty. Bribery. Extortion. Integrity, hard work. Murder, racketeering. Family. Never forgetting where we came from. Who is this guy? you are what you are in this world that's either one or two things either you're somebody or you ain't nobody that is your house mama you want what you got uncle frank i want to be you my investigation indicates that frank lucas is above the mafia who does he work for? Which family? He's not Italian. He's black. No black man has accomplished what the American Mafia hasn't in a hundred years. They tried to kill my wife. Frank Lucas is the most dangerous man walking the streets of our city. This is my home. My country. Frank Lucas don't run from nobody. This is America. (laughs) 
on to a movie. I remember, like, I, I was so excited to see American Gangster in theaters. I probably was opening weekend. I saw it. And I haven't really seen it since. And then I, I watched it. Uh, I ended up with a, a DVD, some business, like going out of business type of thing. But I just haven't watched it since then. Uh, but I always knew that I, I enjoyed it. But I don't think the things I enjoyed were the things that everybody else seemed to kind of praise it mm. for. This time, it, I, I think... It grew in my esteem even more. I, I, I again, I, I enjoyed it. And once I get over the fact that I'm reminded of many other crime epics when I watch American mm. Gangster, and while it has its merits, I, I, I can't say it's the most original film. When I, when I see it. I am kind of thinking of Serpico, particularly with the Russell Crowe section. I am thinking of yeah. Scarface in places. I, I am thinking uh, a little bit of a Goodfellas element here as well as we're introduced to all of these colorful characters. A lot of people don't realize this is, actually is a true story about a drug lord out of Harlem and Frank Lucas, who is mentored by Bumpy Johnson, and we see that kind of early in the film. And basically a, uh, a New York City police officer who is incorruptible. He is not taking bribes or not taking money. He returns a million dollars in cash, which immediately, because of this, in we see this in all of these movies kind of set in the 70s, ones that were filmed in the 70s or ones that go back to the 70s that any police officer like a Frank Serpico or like Russell Crowe's character who is honest and won't do this is then despised by the department. Uh, and there's this whole moral conundrum kind of there that's connected to, the, to that piece. And then he ends up being on this special unit that is trying to deal with like the, the head honchos in the drug world in New York City to stop it. Not the street level dealers or any of that, but figure out who are the heads of these crime bosses. And little do they know that as far as hair Heroin, that it's actually an African-American who is in charge of this drug empire. They all we, they all assume that he works for the Italian mob or something else and that he's in the middle of this. But he, he is the guy who has got this almost 100% pure heroin from Southeast Asia. And he's figured out a way to get it through using soldiers during the Vietnam War and sell it on the streets and it becomes very popular and very profitable. But he follows this code of conduct and he doesn't like it when, you know, his brothers come in and cousins and they start showing off that the money they've earned in ways that will attract the police. Unfortunately though, he makes one mistake at one public event and suddenly everybody is, is paying attention to him, including kind of this corrupt cop uh, in New York played by Josh Brolin. This is another, really Scott can have anybody in his films. I mean, that's, let's just say all the movies have great casts but particularly great supporting performances here but the thing that was kind of funny to me the first time I saw it every I knew everybody was about Denzel Washington's performance Russell Crowe really impressed me in this I, I already told you I liked this more than I liked his performance in Gladiator as this down and out cop who's very committed to doing his job but he, as a result he loses his family he loses friendships he loses everything but he is actually doing the right thing the other movie I, I kept thinking about when I saw it was he Mm -hmm. Right? Because we're just yeah. seeing, you know, the code of conduct for the criminal played by De Niro. And then we see the Pacino character who has his code, but he actually, you know, his his life is a mess because he's so overly committed to his job, but that's why he's a successful police officer. And the two eventually get together and clash. It's cool how they did it in this one, though. It's a it's a nonverbal moment, and it's late, late, late in the film before Crow and Washington see each other in this great scene in front of a church. All that to say, I 
my very positive review on American Gangster. I, I think it's just a solid crime film. I'm a bit of a sucker for these movies. I just, my only knock on it, I guess, is it's not that original. I felt like I'd seen it before. I felt like I could predict most of the beats of what would happen. I kind of knew what would likely happen at the end, but that doesn't say anything against how good the performances are and how well put together it is by Ridley Scott, who I think is as comfortable in the science fiction, heavy intellectual films as he is in a New York crime film. It's very good. So what do you think? I love gangster crime films. And I really wish that this one got talked about more. When you talk about those kind of the films that really represent that genre, I wish this one came up more because it's so good. And I think what's really cool is that Ridley Scott is able to bring his strengths in terms of visual style and in world building. Because although this isn't a distant planet or the ancient past or far in the future, it is a historical piece to a very specific time in a very specific place. And there is an element of world building to that to make that feel authentic. He's able to do that while also having this really feel like it's part of that well-established genre. And so I think, yes, this is not an original film, but at the same time, I kind of, I kind of gravitate towards watching a gangster crime film Mm -hmm. because of the familiarity, because I know what to expect, because there's certain elements to those films that are kind of present across the board. And I think that this film stands right up there with films like Casino and Mm -hmm. Goodfellas. And, you know, obviously those, the ones that came before kind of made their mark. And so I would never say that this is necessarily better than those, but I think it deserves a mention when we talk about the great crime gangster films. Because I think there's a lot here that's really cool. And I one thing that Ridley Scott brings to this that I really appreciate, again, is that, you know, those bigger ideas, those bigger themes, there's a lot of philosophy in this film. And there's a there's a line that really sticks out to me. It's it's spoken by the character of Rossi, who is with the Italian mob, I believe. And he says, more important than one man's life is order. And it kind of it sums up the thing about Denzel Washington's character and Russell Crowe's character. These two men who are different sides of the same coin. They're on different sides of the law, but both of them are men who operate with principle and that are trying to maintain order. And to juxtapose those two characters and the way that they view their responsibility to maintaining order and what that looks like in a criminal enterprise versus in the law, it's just he's able to bring some of those big ideas to a film, you know, where people are getting their heads blown off and there's, yeah. you know, there's like um, crazy shootouts and, and all of the action sequences are really good. But I, I think he is able to infuse some of those bigger ideas here in yeah. a really interesting way. And I appreciate, I guess when it, if we're to take a moment to compare it to Brian De Palma's remake of Scarface, the downfall in some ways with Denzel's character is, is not the same as with, you know, Tony Montana who gets samples his own product and he broke the first rule yeah he just <laughs> which is not 
That that's not what Frank Lucas does. No, what, what what he is trying to do, I guess, is he's using illegal means to make a lot of money, but he is trying to, like his mentor, Bumpy Johnson, give back to the people of Harlem, and he wants to be his own boss. He doesn't want to be some middleman, or he doesn't want to work for, and he's very nervous to get involved with Armando Sante, a, a great actor. I love seeing him in movies, mm-hmm. too, as he's he's the, the main kind of Italian mobster. He's nervous to get involved with that. He wants to be run things his own way and be in charge of it and he figures out a way to do that and he's not intimidated by you know Idris uh, Alba is in the film but like his final scene that's such a great moment him and Denzel together and again it's shocking amount of violence like like any one of these films but what what's interesting though is in in some ways like it would almost be he'd be a character that would not be viewed well in a Scorsese movie because spoilers for the movie he essentially <laughs> becomes a rat he becomes right. a rat yeah. who does he rat out which is really interesting like these two guys they end up coming together to clean up the New York City Police Department and get all of these corrupt criminals who are using their badges for the wrong reasons so you're almost like he's a rat and he's trying to find a way to get out of this larger situation he's in yet the people that he's ratting out are people that we're all none of us are in favor of like as an audience these are people who've been negative to russell crowe but also have been difficult to uh to denzel and so kind of makes sense but it's kind of an interesting place where we're left at the end is like oh and then he goes and he gets his freedom after whatever number of years yet uh scott or steven zalian again he did the uh, screenplay for this they were smart in a sense it's very subtle again there's this really key sequence in the middle of the film where they're having thanksgiving and we're just uh we're seeing denzel's family holding hands and they're saying a prayer of thanksgiving and then we're getting a, a montage of all of the key characters but at the same time as they're having this idyllic you know american dream thanksgiving feast we're seeing the results of the product that he has put on the streets where there's a little boy who discovered his his mom is has od'd and died from heroin use and we're, we're just seeing how in the profit that he's made and even if he's doing good things for Harlem as he keeps saying he takes care of Harlem he's actually killing people and killing his own people with this product and this poison he's putting out there so I don't think it glorifies and I think that was maybe sometimes the misinterpretation of Scarface is he's so cool and it kind of glorifies you know the amount of cocaine and excess and drugs and all of that and the message gets a little bit muddled at points even though I love Scarface as well it's a movie I really enjoyed too in a completely different way but here there's seems to be a little bit of a awareness a little bit more of awareness they don't pre at it like he's you know he's so horrible look what he did but it's it's there visually i don't think i i had noted when i first saw the film Mm. how powerful that particular moment was yeah well and i think there's a lot thematically here that calls back to like like the godfather trilogy you know which is like the granddaddy and the godfather is my favorite movie of all time and i love scarf like i I'm serious. Like I grew up with this stuff. So I, I love gangster movies. I love organized crime films. Yeah, me too. Um, and, and what I love about this one is we get to see a different community, the community in Harlem, their perspective, you know, whereas in the past we've gotten gangster films from the perspective of Italian Americans and immigrant families. This is just a different perspective. And this, as you mentioned, is based on a true story on a real person in their life. And I think one of the things here that you see is the strain on the family, the effect on the community, as the money's coming in, as the product is going out and being consumed by people within the community, it's like you see this transformation 
this happening to the people within this organization, which really he runs like a family and he brings his family in. And we see like, how does bringing his family into this business affect his family? You know, which is, is something I always find really interesting. I think too, one of the themes here that you also see in the Godfather. And I think you see to some extent in some of the others, like casino is an example too, of how as times change, some of these crime organizations are slower to change or the approach that used to work runs up against the challenges of changing times and the changing of the law and changing of the way things are done, Mm -hmm. changing of the things on the situation on the street. And so, you know, when Frank Lucas goes into business in Thailand and it's going to require, it's going to rely on getting the heroin on these military transports. Now, I know my history. I know the year that Vietnam ends is coming up fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this it's isn't going to last. And I and I think so as the as it starts to happen, it's like you get that, no, there's change coming. And our character doesn't see it yet. But mm-hmm. I know that it's coming. And the tension of that. And I think the ending is so poignant because he made this deal to get out of prison. And when he gets out, he's that last scene, he's, he's standing on the street and it's a completely different world. It's like you know, the Shawshank Redemption almost. Like yes, that, that yes. Moment. That's re- strange. That remind me of, yeah, a, a couple scenes from Shawshank when he steps out for that, that moment and you know, they did a subtle job of aging him. It wasn't yeah. too over the top, but yeah. That's no, it great- wasn't extreme. And so, yes, it's that, again, he's going to have to face the passage of time and the world has changed. And there was a time when he was on top of the world and he could mm-hmm. maintain order, but the rules have changed. The game has changed. The streets have yeah. changed. What is his life going to be like in this different world when, you know, it it isn't the world that he learned about from Bumpy Johnson. So I think this movie is awesome. I really like it a lot. You know, I I alluded to it a little bit, but I I think it's interesting. I mean, it's aware of the double standard and like the the racism of the world that he's living in. And when does he get their attention? He wears a fur coat. Yeah. That's the only mistake this guy makes. And he didn't even wear it out of some inflated vanity or trying to show off. It was a present from his wife. It was a gift, yeah. Yeah. You know, and he he hesitates for a moment, but he kind of gives into, you know, it's going to make his wife happy to see him in the gift. And and it's a nice coat. He had to violate his code of conduct. One little thing that he did, similar to De Niro in Heat, of one moment when he stepped away and ignored his code of conduct that led to his I'll say in in air quotes downfall what do you think about because this movie only got two Oscar nominations of production design but it was an interesting I think this was kind of a career honoring thing for Ruby D playing playing Denzel's mother I, I do think well, she's only, awesome her she has very little screen time but the only person who one-ups Denzel in this movie is her yeah that scene when, when she says your wife will leave you I will leave you like if you do what you're thinking about doing and she's been aware this whole time you think that she's kind of sitting there and that she's kind of the stereotypical mother in these movies who's unaware of the criminal activity of her son. No, she's she's well aware of it and she's happy to profit from it, but she she's the one to kind of try to straighten him out. She has some really good scenes. I, I'm glad that she got acknowledged before, uh, yeah. before she died there, but but it was so interesting to me because of so much more screen time for Crow and 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 for, for Washington, but they weren't really, uh, they've been acknowledged a lot in the past and, and, and since then, but that she was the, the lone cast member in her her small role to get get in there 
I'm glad Ridley did this movie. He 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 does a lot of great stuff to it. But I once again we we have a story about an African American gangster, and it's a true story and it's historical. But we have a a British Caucasian director, you know, and I'm not saying like if this had been John Singleton or Spike Lee directing it, do you think? It would have been a better thing. I know it would have been a different film. There's no no doubt about that. But like, what what are your thoughts on? Does it matter who the director is? Like mm. Ridley Scott and Thelma and Louise, Ridley Scott and American Gangster. Does it matter or or not? Because the last few years, they, there's been this real pressure that black stories should be told by black filmmakers. What do you think about, about that idea? I I'm not saying that I think that should be the case, but I'm just right. You right. No, you're just posing the question, and it's. And I, it's a valid question, and it's and I think it's one that's that it's getting talked about more. I think this movie is incredible. I think that Ridley Scott does a, an amazing job. I would love to see what a black filmmaker would do with the story of Frank Lucas, and I would welcome someone doing another Frank Lucas film. Heaven yeah. knows the man had this incredible life. We're telling those stories, so I so yes, yeah, it's, it's complicated because I I do love this movie, and I I love Ridley, Ridley Scott's directing style. I think he does a great job with the film. I think there would be an added significance and weight and maybe a sociological aspect to it if it was a story being told by a filmmaker with direct personal cultural ties you know i think that there's an added weight an added benefit an added significance when that's possible and i would hope you know that we as a society get better about giving filmmakers of color or from particular cultural or you know just different backgrounds to tell their stories, to tell stories that come out of their community because there is that personal element and and giving them a voice. And at the same time, I love this movie. So yeah. it's complicated. And, and, and I, I, I really enjoy this movie too. And I don't think I'd, I'd want it changed. Some of the criticisms of, of American Gangster when it came out where they wanted more of the Frank Lucas story mm. and maybe less of the, the police story. And I guess it was following that sure. type of thing. So, and I know there were attempts. I mean, there was a movie called called hoodlum i don't really recall if i've even seen it but that was again a african-american filmmaker i think it, it was set in harlem i might get some details wrong about that one but it just got forgotten about like it and it seems right. like those imps part of the racist history has been not marketing films by filmmakers of color in this genre Scott directed this i think I'll, I'll never turn down seeing another a gangster film I, I hope that genre never disappears that's always going to be an interesting thing for me and yeah I, I enjoy this i for some reason i thought this this one was going to be homework for me and mm. a few minutes in i was like oh no no i'm I, i'm loving this and i'd forgotten about clarence williams the third he's not in it yes. for a whole lot, but he's in the those first scenes playing bumpy johnson i'm just like Immediately, I love this movie because he's there. there. There are different actors in here. There are some, unfortunately, I I have mixed feelings about. Cuba Gooding oh. Jr., God bless him. <laughs> he, he, he did a decent job of O.J. Simpson a few years ago, and and I, I really liked him in Boys in the Hood. But he's a guy, within a lot of his films, I, I, I'm seeing him act a lot. He has a few scenes, but I'm always seeing him. He's always trying to be mm. something and it's not feeling authentic compared to the rest of the cast in the movie. So really picky one there, but he that, that was just one. His his few scenes just kind of just distracted me for a moment, but it's not very long versus how good everybody else is. And yeah, this time around, I was just like, yeah, 
Denzel and Crow are, are equal, and maybe Denzel's a little bit better, but I guess it's because I expected so much from Denzel the first time I saw it, and Crow, I wasn't sure what we were going to get, and I was like, right. nobody's talking about Crow in this movie, and I think he is very good in it as well, and I, I just like this. I also like that, you know, he's he's going to law school at night, yeah. you know, and he passes the bar, and he, the moment when he he's in the middle of, of all this dramatic stuff, and he gets you know, the, the note that he's passed the bar exam and he can be a lawyer in New York state and he doesn't have a moment. He just kind of just keeps going on with his job after that. So lots of good stuff. It's a bit, another big movie that we could talk, uh, do an entire episode on. Oh, for sure. Two enthusiastic thumbs up. A king has his reign. civilizations that were separated by centuries and yet this same pictogram was discovered in every one of them they're smiling i think they want us to come and find them we're all here because of a map you two kids found in a cave not a map an invitation from whom please tell me you can read that Prometheus, are you seeing this? Whatever that probe is picking up, it's reading life form. What do you mean a life form? Oh, the head. They're changing. Changing into what? It's moving. These things moving. What is that? There's a ship. They're leaving. To go where? Earth. We were so wrong. Take us home! If you don't stop it, there won't be any home to go back to. Where's that door open? It's interesting with these six movies how I think there are two of them that were marred by uh, expectations because of previous yeah. movies. We already talked about Hannibal to Silence of the Lambs, Prometheus to Alien. And I think you know, the weirdest thing was I, I just wasn't reading anything or watching anything because I wanted to see Prometheus, but I didn't actually know that much about it. But I thought I had half heard that this was a prequel to Blade Runner for some reason. Oh. And then when I went to watch it, <laughs> The entire time, I'm like confusion ensued. Have anything to do with Blade Runner? And then once we get into it, I'm like, this is closer to Alien. And yeah, of course, this is a prequel to Alien. This is another one where I, I, I kind of wonder if it had nothing to do with Alien at all. If it might have received a little bit less criticism, because I've heard of people who have huge problems with Prometheus. 
Oh yeah. I, I I like it visually. It's really interesting. I again, the cast is terrific. It, uh, in particular, uh, you know, Michael Fassbender is just he 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 owns this movie really, and I. A lot more like it, very computery, I guess, and unlike some of the earlier effect movies that really Scott had, which were practical effects. But that still didn't stop me from being impressed with the world building that he does uh, with Prometheus. But I, I don't think I had as big a problem with it as, as some others did. I think the Alien franchise has had its ups and its downs, and there are probably some chapters that you could criticize a lot more than Prometheus, but maybe it was because Ridley Scott got back into the the Alien business here, uh, and there were some heightened expectations with him being involved that maybe hurt Prometheus. So the idea here is essentially there's a team that thinks they have found uh, the origin of humankind on this planet, and they go to find this uh, structure, which is on a distant moon. And then they soon realize that uh, it's not exactly what they thought it would be, and they are in a lot of danger, and there's going to be uh, great violence in here. And, and then it does feel like an alien movie where we have a variety of characters. Some of them we like, some of them we don't like. Uh, some of them make horrible mistakes and we start to see how that plays out. But I still think there's some really amazing uh, moments here. Naomi Rapace, I, I always have to check to make sure I'm pronouncing her last name. Yeah. Her name. <laughs> yeah. She was uh, in the Swedish version of the, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. And that's one where they got to do the whole trilogy. Unlike the yeah. uh, Fincher American one. And I think she's quite a good actor. And I, I wasn't sure that she actually spoke English until I saw this movie. And she's kind of a maybe a little bit bland, but then she has probably one of the most remarkable sequences in this movie where she has to essentially perform her own abortion. And yeah. it is a graphic and grisly and painful sequence. And yeah, a lot of special effects, lots of gore, but so well acted by her point on like that character to me was was solid was very very strong some of the other performances were okay to not great i don't think the first time or maybe the first time two times i saw it i realized how stiff Charlize their own is in it mm. and i i don't know why maybe she was miscast in this role she's kind of like in charge of the corporation but then we find out there's of course as there always is in these a greater reason why she's on this particular ship but she's you know she's kind of the one running things and making all of the usual mistakes that uh those evil corporations do in these science fiction movies but yeah just watched it this last time she just seems a little bit uncomfortable in the role and I, I i can't quite figure out what what happened there because she's normally one of the most solid actors that that you can cast in a movie guy pierce talking about like almost like the oldman thing unrecognizable and old age makeup guy pierce has a good role too it gets carried over into the next alien film where he has kind of this wonderful one scene performance there um, with Michael Fassbender. But, and Idris Elba shows up again. I, I did notice and I had forgotten how much Ridley Scott does work with the same people, kind of like Tony Scott, his brother, yeah. and a lot of these great filmmakers. I'm about to do a show on Wes Anderson, of course, where there's tons of people that come in and out of his films too. Idris Elba's good. He, uh, he's always good, but he's, he plays the, the pilot on this uh, spaceship and he, he's one of the, few heroes really i guess his yeah. act is quite heroic towards the end of the film there am i 
you know, bursting at the seams and wanting to sing to the world that Prometheus is the greatest Ridley Scott movie of all time? Absolutely not. But I don't think it's as bad as it's made out to be. But I'm happy to hear from anybody. Uh, and I think more people than not would would disagree with me on this. So, <laughs> Well, I am a huge fan of the Alien franchise. Alien is one of my favorite films. Like, definitely top 10, probably top 5. So what's funny is that I didn't, I don't know how I missed in the lead up to Prometheus hearing or reading about what this was exactly. So when I sat down to watch Prometheus the first time, I didn't realize it was supposed to be a prequel. I think I kind of had the feeling like it was something that existed within the universe, but I was not aware of how exactly. And, and so I went into this with no expectations and that was very helpful. Because right from the jump, I really like this film. And I'll tell you, with subsequent watches, I like it more every time I see it. I, I think this is one of those movies that, again, Ridley Scott, he loves, loves to explore these big overarching themes, these philosophical or existential questions. Stuff like that, you don't always get the nuance of mm -hmm. in one viewing. It's subsequent viewings where some of that stuff really gets in there and you can really dig into it and see what he's trying to say or what questions he's posing for you as a viewer to answer for yourself. And I think this movie is full of that. And you get that signature kind of world building mastery. You get these gorgeous visuals, the space jockey engineers. They look like they're carved out of marble. It's incredible. They look incredible. The ship, like all of the tech, everything looks great. And then on top of it, you have these larger themes about that desire to meet your creator and the arrogance of thinking that the creator owes you an answer. <laughs> and that expectation that the answer will be that there's some greater purpose or, or that it will give your life meaning. You know, and we see this juxtaposition between humans looking to their creator and you have the character of David, played by Michael Fassbender, that he is with his creators all the time. And he's able to very clearly articulate, like, let me tell you, it's kind of disappointing, <laughs> you know? And for me, the Charlize Theron character of Vickers is really interesting because I think she's a great juxtaposition to David because Vickers is very much a human. That's not in question, but she's very cold. She's very shut off. You can tell like she doesn't have a lot of connections with people. Not with her father, the head of this corporation, not with the crew. She has her own little isolated pod within the ship. She holds herself apart and she's very, she's got this very mechanical, cold way of interacting. Whereas David, the android, is has displays all of these very warm human traits and he's not a human and he values that those aspects of humanity even though everyone looks down on him as being other than so it's there's a really interesting juxtaposition between those characters and what it says about what we think being human means and what we value about humanity there's a lot in this movie and i'm going to say the writing is messy so yeah. it's not a perfect film by any stretch, but I, I do think that the expectations that come from this being a prequel to 
one of the most iconic science fiction horror films of all time and this you know just really important franchise does hurt this film because those expectations it's hard for people to look past that and i get it and it's really kind of an accident that i was able to enjoy this the first time without those expectations and and i continue to enjoy it more and more every time well that that's why i i kind of now don't like to read anything ahead yeah. of a release of a movie i want to go in and just judge for myself yeah so i was it was i was coming in almost biased but i i had some mistaken information about it having something to do with blade runner Right. And I told somebody afterwards, like, who on earth told you it was about Blade Runner? No, it's about <laughs> Alien. And everybody knew that. But I think just going in and just watching it as this is just a really Scott science fiction movie, let's see what it is, would probably give you your, your purest viewing experience. But you're right. You, I, I, I was almost, this is one where I was almost nervous to review it because I still don't think I have my head around all of the ideas. Right. Because after that first act, it, it gets pretty, pretty heady. But Getting back to the point you were making about that wanting to meet your creator, this was a cross theme I saw with Blade Runner, where the replicants mm. are, their mission is to find their creator and figure out what was the purpose for, and then they themselves are, uh, at least Rutger Hauer is, is disappointed in what he f- finds. And, and and so I think this is something that Ridley Scott obviously is interested in. And there's a lot of interesting stuff here. So to completely dismiss the movie because it didn't, it didn't meet your expectations of an alien movie or you don't really see the creature until pretty late. And I, I, I don't know. I just, it's just a gorgeous film to look at. One thing about a little bit, this is, this seemed like one of the ones where, and we'll be talking about the Martian pretty soon, where they were trying to curb the swearing in it. Mm. I forget if it had a, with the gore and everything, I don't know if it had a R or PG-13 rating, but it felt like they were trying to avoid using the F word uh, or limited or something. And I wasn't quite sure what the reason was, because if this is part of the Alien, Alien has always to me been an R-rated oh, for sure. franchise. Why would you hold back? The writers, I think one of the writers is a guy who was part of the TV show Lost. Damon Lindelof. Which was at the time, I mean, yeah, that was the TV show. Uh, and talk about a show that has big philosophical ideas throughout yeah. and, and leaves its audience guessing along the way. I think I think the right person for the material. But yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. There are just some things that don't completely click there. One of the points I wanted that you, you said, so that maybe would help me kind of justify the Shirley Theron performance is the stiffness you think I'm picking up on, like this idea that they intentionally wanted her to be a human who acts like a likes like an android or a robot, and that maybe that's, that's my the, read. That's, that's that's the read that I get from it. Is that she's? I think that's intentional. Because I mean, I, the film's been criticized, but I, I I've heard over and over her performance being criticized, and maybe this time I was like looking for well, what is it? Mm. What is what is that thing? But. If, if that was a choice to to do it that way, but I, I don't know, it just it seems to me at point she's not that comfortable with the dialogue, right? Still, and that could be a little bit wooden about the line delivery, which still doesn't indicate that she's a right. Human no, I hear you. Well, it's, and it's interesting the whole Damon Lindelof of it all because I I love the man's work. Yeah, right? me too. I definitely like. I agree with some folks who find that on certain projects his inclinations towards the open-ended question and mystery doesn't work in all in all projects. Yeah. And and he's had some real successes with that and some things that that don't do as well because 
sometimes it's the format, sometimes it's elements of the story that it's just really difficult to convey that those open-ended questions in a way that's going to satisfy audiences. So it's, I really enjoy his, his writing overall. And like, he was the sh writer showrunner of the leftovers yeah. um, and that, the that television series. I love it. I've heard good things about it. I, I read the book to watch the TV show, but I've never been able to get around to watch it, watching it. Yeah, so I, it's great. And it's, and it's one where he had, he was given the freedom and he was very open from the beginning. This show is going to have a lot of open-ended questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to spell out all the mystery. And it really worked in that, in that story the way that story was going to be told. I think for Prometheus, I think, I think there's so much there. I think this could have been split up into two movies even maybe, or I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe a TV series. I got, yeah. I think when I say the writing's messy, I, I think part of it for me is a feeling of there is a lot going on here mm -hmm. and some things feel a little tacked on or like they're a little underdeveloped, but you only have so much time. Yeah. in your standard feature length film to develop this stuff. So he has two and a half hours when six seasons are something that he, he needs six seasons. He needs right, that kind of room right. to be able to fully develop his ideas. Also, I, I mean, I, I think there is a big difference between the alien franchise and, and Blade Runner. And I think fans of, if they aren't fans of Blade Runner, but they're fans of alien, I, I don't know why they wouldn't be fans of Blade Runner, but alien does seem to be something that wraps itself up in a neater bow, I suppose. Sure. Uh, even though it does deal with science and some big ideas, and, but it, it has so much great action in it and all that. But it's not one of those ones where at the end you're like, hmm, what was, you know, what, what right. did the end as like we would with, with Blade Runner? So maybe that's that choice in, in kind of revamping the alien films, as I think this is what Scott was doing. Maybe some people don't think that was the right direction. I, I like it. I'm I'm open to it, but I, I like Covenant. I don't know if you what your feelings are on that. I'll review it on another day, of course. But yeah, Covenant, not my favorite. Thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I'm I'm I like Prometheus leaps and bounds more than Covenant. Yeah. I think people were really mad at Prometheus and then Covenant <laughs> came out and then they're like, oh, I guess Prometheus wasn't as bad as, as that. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know again covenant is one i've only seen like maybe once mm -hmm. maybe twice so yeah. i would be curious if i revisited it again how would i feel about it would i feel hotter or colder for it i don't know but I, i'm uh, still in line if he wants to keep making some alien movies every few years i mean he can have his house of gucci's and martians and all that but it, it'd be right. nice to keep going see what he does i mean i again i don't know he's he's still is working and he's working a lot so uh and oh he, yeah he produces so many other things when he's not directing so um, yeah have you watched race by wolves i haven't no it's so race by wolves is a series on hbo yeah. they're currently in season two and i know he's a producer and i think he directed the first episode of season one i can't remember how many other episodes he's been directly involved with but he's a producer on the project and it's really cool because it involves this whole androids and humans and oh, cool. space colonization a lot of the same ideas and he's involved in that project. I'm not sure in season two how involved he is. I haven't I haven't done a lot of reading up on the production of it, but I've been enjoying it. So. I was maybe sticking on as an ex executive producer. 
a lot of these really a list film directors will direct the the pilot or whatever and yeah keep on it for the rest of the run of the shows i, I think there's some tv shows i based on uh, our conversation here as well too just, just there's always so more to watch than you possibly can watch. there's always yes there's always more and there's only so many hours in the day was there anything else you want to say about prometheus just that i i'm curious 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what people will say about it. I'm, if it will grow in esteem, if it'll get a reevaluation, I'm I'm curious to see. If I'll get the Blade Runner treatment where all of a sudden it's a classic. Yeah. And it was just, yeah. Yeah. Depends where, where they go and where they ultimately end up. I don't know if they'll ever be an end to Aliens like, or the Alien franchise. I mean. Right. It's a moneymaker. It is. Even the Alien versus Predator side chapter things that they did there. I mean, I think they, they do well. And I'm, I'll am i keep watching them, even if they're not very good. This one's better than that. I'm glad that you're also a bit of a defender of Prometheus. So I think it's a good movie, and some people need to give it another chance. I, I, would, I would encourage folks to try again. I guarantee you that at some point, everything's going to go south on you. Ready? And you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Commander, Mark is dead. We have to go. Now you can either accept that, or you can get to work. This will come as quite a shock to my crewmates, and to NASA, and to the entire world. But I'm still alive. Surprise. Here's the rub. It's gonna be four years for another mission to reach me. And I'm in a hat designed to last 31 days. So I gotta make water and grow food on a planet where nothing grows. But if I can't figure out a way to make contact with NASA, then none of this matters anyway. We've got an incoming message. Mind God. <laughs> Mark Watney's still alive. In your face, Neil Armstrong. There must be some kind of way out of here. Okay, so let's do the math. I have enough food to last for 50 days. He's going to starve to death long before we can help. So, I'm gonna have to science the shit out of this. He's 50 million miles away from home. He's totally alone. What the hell is he thinking right now? I am the greatest botanist on this planet. I know how to save Mark Watney. But we need the Hermes crew. We either have a high chance of killing one or a low chance of killing six. I'm not risking their lives. It's bigger than one person. No, it's not. NASA rejected the mission. So if we do this? We're talking mutiny. If anything goes wrong, we die. Do you realize how crazy this is? We had no other option. what happens tell the world tell my family that I never stop fighting to make it home I listened to The Martian as an audiobook, 
and mm. I, I really enjoyed it. I forget who was the re- the reader for it, but he did a really good job with the like Mark Watton being this man who after the accident gets stranded on Mars and people think that he's dead. The voice of that guy who did the audiobook was kind of a little bit sarcastic. It was mm. a little bit of a, a quasi Harrison Ford type of a, a thing, which is really charming and, and worked well. But then the movie came out and it was like, is Matt Damon's playing the role? And then I just was having trouble figuring out how that was going to work. But I was excited that the movie was coming out and Ridley Scott, who he's done a lot of world building here, but this was kind of a, a down to earth yeah. science fiction film, you know, using, you know, the cooperation of NASA and what would really happen if this type of thing had actually occurred, which there's a lot of scientific jargon. And somehow Ridley Scott managed to make, as, as well as everybody involved, and Matt Damon in particular, made this a very entertaining commercial film with the Martian that led, led it into the Oscar business there. I don't think it got a Best Director nomination, but it was up for Best Picture and Damon, obviously, for Best Actor. They, they love these movies where it's the part of it's a one-man show. It's got a bit of a castaway type of a quality to it mm. here where he's a brilliant man and he's a botanist and he's able to figure out how to grow food on Mars because he could be there for the rest of his life or he could be years before they're able to figure out a way to rescue him or the next landing on Mars is I think it was something like it was gonna be four years later or something like that and he he would run out of food and, and time by that point so it's it's fascinating to watch all of that and I think all of these sequences on Mars are great Matt Damon is awesome in it and the book does focus for a long time on Mars before we get back to Earth in the film version they go to Earth a little bit sooner and all-star like again like all these an all-star cast of people i'd love seeing jeff daniels anytime jeff daniels is in a movie even if it's a not a great movie i'm i got to meet him once i just a great great actor i i still think he's underrated even though he's been around forever but and he's the head of nasa and and he's one who kind of declares that mark watney is dead and then they have to backtrack and and problem solve and figure out a way to communicate with him and and then rescue him i do think though unfortunately the stuff on earth is not anywhere as interesting as the survival story that happens on Mars. So it's, I, I love the movie. I'm just being nitpicky with some of the criticisms, but if that, you know, that was just kind of something I noticed again this time that when we go back to Mars, it'd be like, oh good, I want, I'm more interested to watch the stuff that's happening here than all of these really smart people trying to come up with different ways to try to rescue him, even though that was important for the whole the whole arc of the film and, and those two worlds, two pieces together. But in this group of movies, it's maybe a little bit in the middle, a little bit high, maybe a little bit above average in there, but it's in the middle of the pack for me. But uh, yeah, Matt Damon's performance, I think, is, is truly the highlight. And just Scott's direction and the technical pieces and, again, the music choices. Starman, like, you know, the David Bowie thing is so obvious, yet somehow I got chills seeing it in the yeah. movie theater when that that kicked in i like i know i knew it was coming at some point and it's a montage which is the most cliche thing that you could put at this particular moment but i'm still like yay movie uh there's a more good stuff than not in the martian so i'd recommend it highly what are your thoughts on it I agree. I think this is a great film. It's 
you know, this is a different kind of space movie for Ridley Scott because this is kind of more of a, a space drama. And again, in some regards, not the most original idea because you have like movies like Apollo 13 and the right stuff, you know, things that are about space missions where problems have arisen and, and how are they going to mitigate these issues to have a successful mission and bring the astronauts home? Like we've seen movies along that vein before. I haven't read the book, but I do get that impression that we get the science here. And mm -hmm. I love that Ridley Scott really incorporates that and makes it an important part of this film yeah. to show them doing the science stuff and have it be interesting and feel authentic. Of course, I'm a lay person. So what do I know about astrophysics and botany and all that stuff? I don't know. But it seemed it seemed a little more credible <laughs> than the science in some some films where they're less interested in the science and more just interested in the adventure of it or the or the dramatic tension of yeah. it this one you get both you get all of those things yeah. and it was it is really fun to watch him science <laughs> and not everybody can pull that off and i i think that he does and that matt damon does and really humanizes this character that could very easily come across as is too intelligent to be relatable but he's not he's very relatable and yeah the music cues and and i think too you know really scott again with his ability to film these just gorgeous visuals and put you in the middle of a world that you've never been to before to do that here you take something like a space drama which we've we've seen other instances of but it is so epic and grand those Mars landscapes, you know, it's just, I think it's really well done. And I do agree, like there is, I'm definitely more interested to see what's happening on Mars than I am what's happening on earth. But I, I think one way that it's, it's interesting to have the two kind of back and forth side by side to compare like, you know, like the issues on earth about funding and about public relations. There's a lot more of those like earthly concerns. Whereas Mark Watney astronaut stranded on Mars, it's like, how am I going to farm these potatoes? And all of these <laughs> things, these little triumphs become monumental just yeah. to survive. And, yeah. and I think this film does a really good job also of balancing the triumphs and the misfortunes so that oh. you get moments of real tension. How is he going to get through this? He's a goner for sure. There's This is going to fail. It's like mm. a great job of building that tension and then also having these really hopeful inspiring moments and i'm a person that kind of gravitates toward darker more cynical films in general but i love the warm fuzzy feeling this movie gives me when they have those little life-affirming moments where the resilience and yeah just the resilience of the characters gets them through these difficult times and you have these this triumph like it's just it's a really good feeling watching this movie for me yeah and i know it it does feel in some ways like a, a four-year consideration type of a movie mm. how it's laid out but each step is just so well handled there's a moment that i hadn't really thought of until you mentioned that key moment in american gangster where he steps out of prison and he's like what do i do now we have a similar moment to that for matt damon where spoilers yeah. the movie does actually get back to earth be a bit of a downer film yeah <laughs> i'd admire it but it would be down or film with that but there's this, this moment where he's like sitting there and he's having a cup of coffee and, and and he's just watching everything happen and it's just 
it's like he is he's become he is the martian he is an alien on his own planet you know yeah uh, it's just this really nice another kind of nice ridley scott working with a great actor type of a moment yeah um, that's a great point i i would criticize i noticed that this time they would telegraph a crisis though mm. there would be like jeff daniels are having some meeting on earth and say well we'll just hope nothing bad happens and then we switch <laughs> to mars it's like okay uh something bad's gonna happen and yeah, of course yes that part of the uh the ship explodes there right. and, and matt damon's potato harvest is is gone completely and he has to start all over again whereas i would rather that not be us led into that moment i think this is a sure. small piece of like the writing on the whole is really good but i just noticed that that, that was the most blatant example of it but i think there were yeah. other moments along the way where they were hinting at what's going to happen next i don't know preparing the audience for it and i i don't like that i would rather think it's just a regular old scene when something really dramatic happens and then i'm actually shocked by it here i was like oh this is the act two crisis all right uh, here right. we go but on the other end of the scale like this the climax of this film and the rescue of it. I mean, it's an insane idea yeah. and when it's happening. I know exactly what's going to happen. I, I read the book. I've seen the movie before, but my heart is still in my throat when Jessica Chastain and Matt Damon are stuck there in space. And it's just like, yeah. if this missed, it would be as horrifying as that scene in 2001 A Space Odyssey when that, you know, the, the one astronaut goes flying into space and his body will just be there forever. I mean, it it's uh, it's an exciting, exciting film. And so maybe some things are a little bit for your consideration or formulaic, but we're in the hands of a master director. And that makes all the difference as well as just if you can have the cast that he has, then you're even the worst scene in the movie is going to be better than the best scene in some other movies. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed The Martian. I'm not sure what else I want to say about it other than that, but I, I wanted to shout out Jeff Daniels and... There's a lot of familiar faces. Uh, Sean Bean's in it, and he doesn't actually die, which is kind of he a nice... He lives! Sean Bean lives! Yeah. Michael Peña. Michael Peña is great in this. Again, like, you know, he's just one of the crew members, and, and so he has some screen time, but not a whole lot. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, a part of this ensemble. But you get a lot about the characters from their little banter, and so his scenes are great. I think Donald Glover yeah. as your Wonder Boy genius astrophysicist... Yeah. Yeah. who kind of plays by his own rules but comes up with a solution that that they need is is great. Kristen Wiig is great in yeah. this. Jessica Chastain is great. I mean, it's just a, it's an amazing cast. Like you said, like the score is beautiful, the and the music that's used, the needle drops. There's just there's a lot here that's like this nice blend. Matt Damon carrying the scenes where he's alone and does a great job. And then the other scenes where there's an ensemble cast all of a sudden, you know, yeah. with NASA or, or um, the JPL um, physicists, like there's just a lot of juggling of all these different elements that I think they pulled off really well. I think it earned its, its hype, you know, it met expectations and show that even if a movie gets the hype of say a, a gladiator or a Thelma and Louise, sometimes it actually can satisfy right. most people, even though I'm yeah. sure there's people out there that don't like The Martian for one reason or the other. Oh, of course. Well, and, and that's okay. It's okay to not like it, but it's okay to not like it. Not we don't all like the same things. I, it's fine. Again, I I enjoyed all six of these, and I think you maybe I think four of the six you you enjoyed. So and and even the two that I'm. Eh. 
about. It's a personal preference thing and, and watching them in preparation for our discussion and trying to kind of put aside my, my personal biases and preferences and just kind of trying to just kind of take it in with an open mind, even though they're, they're kind of not my thing. It's like, I can appreciate some of the the good things about these films, you know, and I can see why other people enjoy them. You know, that's a trick is not to be dismissive of anything, but just try to find. And I, I, again, I, with all these shows, I rewatch them and I try to keep an open mind. And if for some reason I'm watching like, Oh wow, I've never noticed these bad things about Thelma and Louise. It's actually the other movies are better. Like I, I leave myself open to that. Even if over the years I've thought of quite highly of something here. In this case, it didn't change my mind completely, but I think <laughs> American Gangster probably jumped the most. Mm. Uh, Hannibal dropped down a couple of notches. Uh, I think probably when I first saw American Gangster, I thought I liked Hannibal more than it, but it's, you know. Anyway, we're going to get to points in a few moments here, but anything else you want to say about The Martian? You know, I think it's one that I'll, I don't know how often I'll rewatch it, but I will definitely, it's one that I think I will revisit you know, every, every few years or so. Cause I, I do like, I forget about it, even though like I enjoyed it the first time I watched it, but I kind of forget about it. And, and I really had a, a fun time watching it again. It's just the, the perfect situation, a very popular book, but a smart book because you're right. If if it wasn't Mark Watney and if he wasn't such an interesting, and he's an interesting guy in the book, and then he's uh, maybe an even more interesting guy in the movie because of Matt Damon's star power. But if he wasn't relatable or interesting character, then it would be a tough book to get through and a bad movie. But they did everything right with the whole thing leading into the release of the film. So total success story with The Martian. What? You're not gonna give up on me, are you? What do you mean? You're not gonna make a deal with that guy? I mean, I just wanna know. Tell me, I'm not making any deals. I mean, I don't understand if you're thinking about it. In a way, you got something to go back for. Jimmy. Jimmy's not an option. But, um, I don't know, you know, something's, like, crossed over in me, and I can't go back. I mean, I just couldn't live. I know. I know what you mean. Anyway, don't want to end up on the damn Geraldo show. (laughs) Yeah. Murder. Ooh. Yeah, they say that we gotta figure out if we wanna come in dead or alive. Gosh. Did he say anything positive at all? Well, Carmelita, thank you for being on my show again, and I hope you will come back. You're just such an awesome guest, and I, I always feel lucky when you come on because I, you know, you're. 
I've said this before, like you're connected to a lot of really top-notch podcasters there in the U.S. and they want you on your show all the time too. And I'm I'm kind of out here doing this uh, this little independent show, and so I appreciate your willingness to come on. Uh, no, it's my pleasure. Happy to, to come back on. Yeah, that 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 would be great. So we'll talk about some other ideas there moving forward here. Down to business, we need to do the points thing. I think they're mm-hmm. going to be interesting this time. Um, I think so too. Yeah, we didn't agree completely on all six of the movies, which is makes for a more interesting podcast actually so uh, I think we agreed on Blade Runner the final cut so how many points would you give it so I gave it 17 points and Thelma and Louise five that was gonna be my guess I was guessing about five there Hannibal two American Gangster. 12. And Prometheus. 12. And finally, The Martian. 12. So you did actually spread your points. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I... Yeah, I I've seen I, more I, dramatic I, than, than that. It's sure. That, yeah. I thought about... I mean, I thought about giving Blade Runner like 25 points, but then I was like, Jason's got to like Blade Runner. I don't think I have to worry yeah. about Blade Runner. I don't, yeah. I don't think I have to put all my points in that basket because I think we're on the same page about this. So what, what I... Been, what would have been interesting, again, going back, I've watched the Siskel and Ebert review. I should watch a review of uh, the director's cut as, as well as as Blade Runner. It was like Gene Siskel really was brutal with Blade Runner, thumbs down and everything. I could tell that director's cut, he was trying to save his legacy and he was being starting to be so much nicer <laughs> than the director's cut. <laughs> Well, I like the improvements they've made on this, and it is a it is a very popular whatever. And in eighty two, he just said there were no interesting characters, and the visuals were interesting for ten minutes, and there was nothing else to it. It's just like I don't. Know, I was more of an Ebert guy, so I was happy to just see that. Even though I think they both could have been more enthusiastic about it. And right, I don't know. <laughs> different strokes for different folks. Yeah, Blade Runner Final Cut. I guess I am spraying my points around a little bit here, but 15 points I gave it there. Thelma and Louise. I also gave 15 points to. I, I like it a lot more than you do, and that's okay. Hannibal. I like more than you do, but I gave it seven points, so I didn't uh, didn't go too crazy with the points this time. American Gangster. I went for kind of an even 10 with that one. Nice. Again, that's one I, I didn't know where it was going to land here, but I was really happy that I had a better time with it this time. Prometheus, I actually gave it five, which seems mm. seems low. That was the one where I was thinking of, okay, I'm spotting more problems this time. I, I Again, I, I like the look of it, and I like some of some of the performances, but it's one I always feel like I, I'm trying to figure out or I'm trying to fight a little bit, but maybe I, I think it's more me than the film itself. But I also don't think it should be a hated movie. I think it's just, in this case, up against these six, I... Uh, that's why I got five. Sure. Martian also maybe seems ungenerous. It was eight points. I kind of had it in the middle. And I, I like it a lot. I, I did find it a little bit more. It ties the, the bows together or the knots together or whatever. I, I'm not left with a lot of questions at the end of it, even though it had a lot of heavy science. It isn't as thought-provoking as Blade Runner. And it doesn't... I'm always excited to watch Thelma and Louise. The Martian, I like you said, every few years, I'll maybe take a look at it again. And when I'm in it, I'm like, oh, I, I, this is really good. I enjoy so a little bit a little bit different places with the points here but what that means is not a shock i don't think that blade runner the final cut <laughs> can shock it if, if it was otherwise but that was had the most points it ends up it's with safe. 32 next most was american gangster with 22 then tie for third thelma and louise and the martian had 20 points each followed by in uh, fifth place prometheus with 17 and hannibal gets nine so hannibal is uh, the movie uh, it's a dvd version of it that has to leave my movie shelf and you get to decide what i do with it. oh um hmm. 
That's a good question. Does anyone take DVD donations? There's a few places here, I think, you know. Um, yeah, maybe donate it. I'll yeah. donate it. Because you don't hate it. You enjoy the movie. So, yeah. and I would never tell you to smash it up. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, yeah, there's merit in somebody enjoying it. So maybe donate it or gift it yeah. to someone you think would appreciate it. I will do that. Thanks for coming on again. And uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hear from you again. Want to mention Matt's show, uh, Film Feast. I I'm a little bit behind on the episodes. Someone I'm listening to right now is the 10 discoveries of the year. Oh, that's a good one. Have you been on one of his shows recently? I have. Yeah. We recently did an episode on Total Recall. Oh, cool. That was a lot of fun. Nice. And it, at the time of this recording, it hasn't been released yet, but there's another that's coming up. I won't say what. You'll okay. just have to, you'll have to check. People will have to check out Film Feast because yeah. it's a great, it's a great podcast. Matt's awesome. He, he just seems like I don't really know him that well. He, he was on one, one show and we're planning, uh, he'll, he'll be back on my show at some time. But nice. he's a busy guy. I mean, he's, oh, yeah. And he does one show a week. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've been having trouble getting one done every two months lately. So I appreciate when he can be on he just seems like the nicest guy i don't know him that well but he just seems like such a such a nice guy so uh, yeah no that's genuine he is yeah, he's awesome yeah. i just love uh love supporting his show there and my buddy larry parson show rank and review and another one of the saskatoon podcasts great show and kurt fitzpatrick's uh, show kurt will be uh, back with us uh, for a couple shows coming up soon here a lifetime of hallmark where he reviews he and two other guys in hilarious fashion review hallmark or lifetime <laughs> movies <laughs> And, you know, it's Kurt's really good because he actually sounds he's like so straight laced with his humor. Like he, he seems to be taking these movies very seriously. And so uh, so I always want to promote uh, the podcasts out there that my guests are on. Yeah, I keep thinking like maybe you'll have your own podcast at some point, but I don't know. If One that's of these safe. days, someday, yeah. I, I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to connect with the hosts of all these different podcasts. And they've been so gracious to ask me to come on and talk movies with them. And I love it. And I thoroughly enjoy enjoy it yourself included yeah it's just it's it's so fun to talk get to talk to different people and i mean i'll be honest i get to do the easy part i just show up i watch some <laughs> movies i take some notes then i show up i talk to somebody interesting we have a fun conversation and then i just keep going and yeah. they do the editing and all of yeah. that you know yeah. one of these days i'll make the commitment i'll take the plunge but for now i'm enjoying i'm enjoying being a guest well when you do i will be there anytime you need me because i awesome. uh, you coming on the show and I want to be able to pay that back to uh, yeah. possible. when the there. day comes you will be on my list let me know and to those listening again please I don't know I, I, I keep I've been so like my sign off has been like be kind to one another and stay safe but it feels like each episode that I do that's even more true I just yes I, I'm so happy to concentrate more of my time and energy into watching and talking about movies than some of the other negative stuff that's going on in the world and I just think people need to be nice to each other no matter what they believe i just and try to try to see the good in others it's sometimes tough to do i know but uh, just people out there just take care of yourselves and uh, take care of your neighbors and friends and family and please uh, tune into the next episode of the shelf shedding movie show thanks so much bye